燃え上がれガンダム何のために泣いたんだ何のために捨てたんだ疑え僕をやめないように Welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wacky and wonderful world of Gundam. But we are rising. We are rising. We are re-rising. Because today we get to talk about a good Gundam show after the hell that was the original Gundam Build Divers. Someone at Sunrise said, we can't do that again. We can't put the fans through that again. So they said, if we're going to do a sequel, let's make it a good one. And thank God they did. Yes, we are talking about Gundam Build Divers Re-Rise, which people have been promising us for years. Uh, at least since this aired, with 2019 to 2020, during the lifetime of this podcast, uh, people have been promising us, hey, you're going to suffer through Build Divers, but on the other side is a rainbow called Re-Rise. You're going to like it. And I'm happy to say the fans did not lie. Gundam Build Divers Re-Rise... Is a, is a damn good show. I really enjoyed this one. Yes, me too. Um, and it's it's one that, like, I think it's good fully on its own terms. I don't think it's, like, a masterpiece show or anything. It's not as good as, like, the original Build Fighters. Um, but, like, it is a, it's a good show on its own terms. It's an amazing show relative to its yes. uh, predecessor, <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's, that's, it's like the reverse of the Build Fighters Try effect, where it's like Build Fighters Try is a very, like, whatever show that is a sequel to, like, an all-time great show. Um, and so Build Fighters Try is, feels even worse in the comparison, at least to me. Um, and this is the reverse, where it's like Gun to Build Divers is like a real trash kind of just nothing show. And then Re-Rise is, is very good, and it, in the comparison, it like its uh, virtues, I think, expand even more in the experience of watching it. Partially because it like spends the time to kind of go out of its way to sort of school the original show and say, yes. "Hey, like <laughs> here's everything that that show did wrong, um, and here's how you do it right." To the point where they basically spend two episodes in the second half. Just saying, basically, if we had done the original Gun to Build Divers, here's what we would have done with it uh, in a big flashback arc kind of stuff. Um, and, and that is sort of the experience of Re-Rise is being like, hey, Build Divers was awful. Here's what a show like this could be if it was good. And more than that, too. Like, it is such a, it's such a weird show in, in good ways. But mm-hmm. it is because it embraces the video game isekai thing that Build Divers did so poorly and does it well. Yeah. But it also sort of does a traditional isekai portal fantasy to a full fantasy world. And it does, just does that. And some episodes are just, you know, they feel very much like the sort of Chronicles of Narnia effect of kids going into another world. Um, it is also much more of a sort of traditional Gundam AU show than any of the build shows. Because it has, 
heroes and villains and like real stakes and some of those sorts of things. Not that like Build Fighters doesn't have stakes, but that's very sort of personal small stakes. Um, like in, there was a chance that characters in Rewise could have been actually killed over the course yes. of the plot. Like that's like a very different thing than the like nature of the stakes in the other Build shows. Exactly. So it's all of those. Um, but it is also sort of, you know, a fun, you know, sort of Gundam-based comedy in the way the build shows, uh, build fighters and try are, and divers just completely fell flat at, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then also it is a sequel, sometimes more directly than you would think from the beginning of the show, to build divers that is, like, directly critical of it. Like, I don't know how else to look at that flashback arc they do other than, like, the writer of this show had the exact same criticisms we did, and it's like well, I'm going to yes and the shit out of this and completely humiliate my improv partner, basically, is what yeah. they do. Um, and yeah, I agree with you, Sean. I, you know, I don't think this is the best Gundam show, um, which is not an insult at all. There's a lot of really great Gundam shows. I also would probably put it below the original Build Fighters, but it's really good. I would totally put, like, in my sort of, like, tier list that if you follow me on Twitter... After we watch Gundam shows, I have this sort of ongoing tier ranking. And this sort of wound up in the same tier for me as stuff like Gundam Age, uh, G Gundam, mm -hmm. Gundam X, Gundam Seed for me. Um, where, like, those are all shows I love that are not, you know, perfect. And, and honestly, Rearise maybe has the least flaws of any of those in terms of just it's very consistent at what it is. I don't think its ambitions are as high as some of the other shows like that I would put above it, like a Victory Gundam or Double Zadar kind of in the tier above that or something. But it's a it's a super solid show. If you are a Gundam fan, 100% you should watch it. It's very good. Uh, you don't need to see the original Build Divers. Don't suffer no. through it. You're fine. Um, and yeah, and I you know, and I do think there is probably the weakest stretches of the show to me are near the end where it ties in mm -hmm. more to Build Divers because you know. It would, it would be stronger if I had any residual affection for the stuff from that show that it's doing callbacks to. Uh, although you can kind of tell that this show also is not invested in that. So it kind of like does it like nominally and then goes and does other stuff. But yeah, overall, I think, you know, this show has super solid fundamentals on the characters, on its themes, on its world building. It's fun. It moves well. It's got great action. It's got a lot of creativity. Um, and at its best, I do think what this show does special is, I think, some of the stuff it does with the main characters and their development, you know, through the game and through the adventure they go on, feels very sort of mature and honest to me. Um, and I found that very remarkable and, and special. Yeah, I think the, I think for me the big thing is the the fundamentals of the show, as you say, are so solid. Because um, I would agree that I would put it in the exact same spot. I would put it around where I'd put Gundam Age and after we're Gundam X. Um, and and it's it's not because you know it's it's the show doesn't have like huge ambitions to be the greatest TV show of all time, but it's fine. You know, not every show needs to be like that. And it's something where it feels like the show is very aware of kind of like what its scope is and what it can tackle and it's just shored up the fundamental storytelling um of it so strongly of that the characters the setting the plot the themes all are really well considered all are thoroughly intertwined everything is like set up well it's paid off well um it's just the whole thing feels like a very like confident teams telling the story knowing the full scope of it and how to deliver it effectively and efficiently um, and there's something I really appreciate that, particularly within this genre, 
where I would say the modern version of the isekai genre in general is not very good at fundamentals. Even really good shows or shows that I think are really good, like Sword Art Online, are really variant in quality. And there are like lots of peaks and lots of valleys. I think that's very typical of the modern isekai stuff because it kind of comes out of this more amateurish fan fiction background. Um, that where that's kind of inevitable where you'll get some like lightning in a bottle stuff but that also is accompanied with like an occasional story arc that you're like this is just complete garbage how did this even get in here um whereas re-rise feels like it's got a very like 90s era isekai uh sensibility to it that is just like really on that like sort of the basic fundamentals of the storytelling and using the genre concept as so intentionally in like with such clear vision to explore the major themes and the characters like major dynamics that the biggest thing this show reminds me of honestly is like Digimon. It's got a super, super hardcore Digimon energy to it. By I specifically mean Digimon Adventure 1 and like Digimon Tamers, which are the two shows I've seen um, and seen recently enough that like I am confident in like saying that without just being like, uh, you know, rose tinted glasses, that those shows are also all Digimon stuff is also Isekai. Um, and it's always about the same thing that Re-Rise is, which is picking a core cast of characters that have, like, each one has a sing like, a very focused, clear kind of issue or, like, dynamic. In here, it's, like, all related to people's, like, identity and its relationship to the digital world and the physical world, which is a very Digimon concept. Digimon, of course, being digital monsters. And, and those characters then get their, like, two or three episodes of them facing whatever that core issue is and then overcoming it with the power of the group. And then it's the second half of the show is about them all as a group growing together and stronger and then ultimately being able to overcome those difficulties. Um, and it's always very about like modern, relatable, real kind of social issues, which is the thing that kind of distinguished Digimon Adventure from its peers, like the Pokemon show. Um, and Re-Rise just has that quality through and through. Uh, and that's the thing I think I probably appreciated about it the most is those core fundamentals in that like strong Digimon energy um, as a fan of Digimon and that kind of stuff. Uh, really, really fun show to watch. It's funny you mentioned Digimon because I was going to say that too. I And I have not ever seen any of the Digimon shows, but y'all know how much I love Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth mm -hmm. and its sequel. Big Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth energy throughout yeah. this, including the music also, hugely improved from the original yes. Build Divers. It's a really good score, and it's the same composer, right? Yes. Yeah. Really... I think it's clear evidence that, like, if a composer is given nothing to compose to, you can't expect much of them. Right. It's, like, clearly <laughs> getting a real story and material to, like, inspire the music um, made it, like, way better. Because it's the exact same person. It's just they have, like, something to compose for rather than the yes. like empty shell of a story and characters it's like well how do you make a riku theme for build divers one i don't know so here's just some generic rock guitars here you go right exactly no and i i completely yeah i i think the music reminded me a lot of digimon story cyber sleuth it does its own thing too it's a great score and and honestly every element is improved even though the writer is the only major position that changed i mean part of this is due to the we're going to talk about this the sort of it's an it's a net animation and it was made mm -hmm. over a longer period of time so the animation is way better than in build divers um it's honestly some of the nicer like modern tv gundam animation there's some really good stuff in it um i think the direction is much stronger you see some of that spark i think this director showed in build fighters try in its best moments much more here and then, yeah, I just love the characters. I love sort of their arcs. It's a show I have a ton of fondness for. And again, the only thing that, you know, honestly, the only thing that would stop me from putting it in a higher tier is just that 
it is a sort of smaller ambition show in the same way an After Work Gundam X is. And you know I love that show. So I love this one too. And I'm really excited to talk about it because there's so many cool things going on in this very good show. And also there's a lot of dunking on the original build divers in this show. So yes. there you go. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk. This is, will be a brief history section because there's not really much to talk about with how the show is made. But we'll go over like some of like the basic stuff here. Um, obviously, like, the reason the show was made is just, like, the original Build Divers sold Gunpla well enough that it's like, well, let's put out a sequel. Um, and so then they put out a, they decided to make a sequel. Um, but they did a couple things different, as you intimated, Jonathan. This is uh, originally aired first as a online stream on, like, YouTube and, uh, like, streaming platforms in Japan. So it's technically what you would call an ONA, or an original net animation. Although, like, even though it was that, it did also then air on TV in Japan, like, a couple of days after the, the live stream. So it still did get a TV airing. So it has, um, like, basically the same kind of budget and all that kind of stuff. It's to say, it's nothing about the show's production particularly changed for that. It's more than, like, exploring um, that as an option to see, like, hey, does this kind of work? And there are a bunch of other shows, like, around this time... Um, a couple of years ago that are starting to kind of do more of this ONA stuff that is not what a, a net animation used to be which is usually like a three to five minute short that's very low budget now we're getting more shows that are experimenting with this model of like airing originally purely on streaming and then later coming onto to tv in japan um the major difference in terms of the uh, staff, as we've said, we said it on the last show as well, but it is very much worth in emphasizing because I think it's very clear the amount of influence this had on the show is that the previous show was uh, written primarily by a guy named Noboru Kimura, and this show was um, written by Yasuyuki Muto, who in Gundam circles would be best known for uh, his work uh, as the main writer for the Unicorn Gundam OVAs and for the Hathaway movie. Um, and then he's just got like a bunch of credits and he's worked on a lot of stuff. So it's a very experienced writer who has a lot of experience within Gundam specifically also. Um, and that is a huge difference. Like if there's anything you want to look at as like, how can you see the influence that like the writer has on a show because i think there's usually so much emphasis on who the director is like the gundam build divers thing is an interesting comparison because i don't think you usually get a scenario quite like this where you have the same director um on two projects so closely related and where the rest of the elements like the character designer and and the like animators and all that are all the same uh, but the only position that's really changed is the main series writer the series composition role um, and it's it's interesting to see that contrast because I'm not aware of any other shows that have like that exact scenario um, off the top of my head. Certainly no Gundam show has had that happen. Um, and so getting a person who really knows how to write some shit, how to structure a show, how to explore characters and themes. Uh, someone who like I think also I wonder if Yasuki Muto also plays video games. And maybe it's like we finally got someone who's actually played a video right. game on the staff because it's like it's much the show is much more immersed in like video game culture and those ideas than Gundam Build Divers was. Um, even though this show takes place by far the least amount in the actual video game because they're mostly in a real world, quote unquote. Um, but yes, uh, that's like the main difference in terms of how it's produced. And then the other Notable thing about this show is that it is the first Gundam show released in uh, the Reiwa era in Japan. If you don't know, Japan organizes its calendar based on eras related to the Emperor. Um, so we, for a long time, were in the Heisei era of Gundam. Um, 
and then now we are in the Reiwa period of Japanese of the Japanese calendar. And this is the first Gundam show in that period, and it is also the first Gundam show that fully aired after we started recording this podcast. Um, and is as of now the last full like main Gundam series. So we are, you know, we are we are here talking about Rerise, uh, which is a very weird feeling. It was like a weird feeling watching the show, knowing like. Oh fuck! Like there's not another big Gundam show to just roll off on to immediately. Um, that's that is the I think the other notable thing about where this show kind of falls in the history of this franchise right now. I think there would be two other things I want to note with it. This is also technically the first Gundam show not produced by Sunrise because it was produced by Sunrise Beyond, which is a new studio they opened under. Uh, Sunrise has had some restructuring in the last couple of years. Um, the, the, the big overall structure formerly named Sunrise is now Bandai Namco Filmworks. And then the Sunrise that was the studio that did all the Gundam stuff is still Sunrise within that. But there are a couple other studios. Sunrise Beyond was open around this time after they purchased and closed a company called Jibek. Which, uh, or it's X-E-B-E-C I'm not, I think it's, yeah, Jebeku is how it's spelled in Katakana um, They made shows that they're listing here Like Shaman King, um, Star Blazers, Battleship Yamato 20, 2202 One of the new Yamato movies or shows uh, So stuff like that and, and I guess some of that staff rolled into Sunrise Beyond So this one was um, still in the overall corporate hierarchy there But it was moved to that other arm Which... Uh, they then that team then did go on and make a show called King's Raid: Successors of the Will, which is a video game adaptation. So kind of staying in that wheelhouse, and we'll see what they do in the future. It would kind of make sense if that's where future build stuff sort of winds up, um, and Sunrise proper is doing the Gundam things. But that happened, and then this show does air differently than other twenty-six episode Gundam shows. It is a two-season show. Sure, it airs October twenty-nineteen to um, uh, December twenty-nineteen. For season one for the first 13 then season two airs in two halves from april 2020 through may and then it came back in july through august so this was 26 episodes but it aired over a full year uh with two big breaks in the middle so i do think you see that in some of the production of the show is quite a bit tighter than i think you got on the last show yeah because basically yes it's 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 a two core show but the two cores are actually split um which it was gundam has not done before but is a very common thing in other shows um and yeah i guess that raises that i guess the other thing is you know obviously with the timing of the show is that this is also the show that was that where the coronavirus pandemic started happening during the production of the show that's part of where that delay happened in the second season um is that that started affecting the production of the show in terms of um how quickly they could get episodes out um and so that's where yeah there was a a short delay uh in the second half and then they started doing like there's a lot of because it's a like a was a live stream thing they did a lot of like other ephemera around the edges of the show that some of which is kind of hard to find and they use that to kind of do recap type stuff um hosted by kagami the character kagami who in universe hat is like a live streamer and a, a youtuber i forget what their fake youtube is called um they sort of like contextualized that in some like sort of like uh extraneous material around the edges of the show when it was airing interesting i don't know what their fake youtube was called but they uh you do have mcgee in the final episode talk about gunstagram and i do love that there is that implies that there is instagram in this world and that someone either just ripped it off or like bought the bot. I like the idea that like the gunpla company in Japan bought Instagram from Facebook and renamed it Gunstagram. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, that's that's what I would name it. There's <laughs> no there's no way that anything could go wrong about something called Gunstagram. That's just it's you know there's no way that that, that would ever hurt anything ever. Uh, that is definitely a joke that comes from a culture that does not have guns. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah. So that's the the background production. I think it's some interesting stuff there. But yeah, obviously the most notable thing is in the writing. Because this show, I mean, it is like from moment one, yes. night and day difference in terms of this show almost like works overtime in those first couple episodes to like very clearly, here's a main character with motives and personality. Here's a team. Like, I mean, by the end of that, that first episode is a really good like Gundam mm -hmm. intro in terms of we're packing a lot into 25 minutes. And because by the end of that first episode, you've met all four characters, you get a sense of like who they all are. We'll get to know them much better, obviously. Uh, and you have them sort of form this rough partnership and you've gone to the planet of the furries, Eldor. We don't know it's a actual planet yet. And we've started to meet those characters. We've met Freddy, all of that. Uh, ending in, I think, a phenomenal joke that they're just called build divers, but May changes the eye to be a little eye. Uh -huh. And that's how they differentiate themselves. Um and it just, I remember getting the end of that first episode and going, oh, thank God, this is a real TV show made by professionals. Yeah, I think it is, yeah, like, really worth, like, specifically diving into that first episode because it's so critical immediately to getting off on the right foot. And the big thing is that we have an actual main character. We don't yes. have a weird, walking, <laughs> empty void, which is Riku from the first show. Um, is that we have Hirote, who, like, I, there is going to be at least one time over the course of this podcast that I'm accidentally going to call him Kirito, which is the main character from Sword Art Online, because the where they got the inspiration for some of this character's characterization is very clear. Like, he's very clearly modeled off of Kirito, the main character from Sword Art Online, but that's fine, because, like, he's a good protagonist character in this genre so like you know all all like stories are you know pulling different elements from different things i'd much rather have something try to emulate another character and not to say that he is a copy he is his own character they do unique stuff with it but like the premise of the character is very similar um and i would much prefer that over like being here's generic protagonist boy uh riku who just goes about his life as a generic protagonist boy um and yeah it's just immediately you have the core dynamic being and the thing that is very similar to kirito is he is someone who is a loner right so he's playing a game where most people are teaming up but he has chosen to be on his own clearly for because of some kind of like trauma he has suffered in his past that means that he is having difficulty associating and connecting with people while he's playing the game and then over the course of the story as he makes relationships with other people in the game he starts to open up and confront those traumas um and those traumas being losing someone in the game which in sword art online is like a very obvious thing because it's a you die in the game you die in real life thing but here it's um even i think stronger in terms of the way they metaphorically explore his relationship with eve and how it connects to our like relationships with people in the digital world um but that trauma is something that he has to like overcome and confront over the course of the series and that is an arc for a main fucking character that has like a personality that has unique characterization that has so much room to grow but is also very likable because he's incredibly relatable because everybody has to deal with like shame and grief and the kinds of things that hiroto is dealing with 
Um, and so right off the bat, he is like very appealing and interesting, and you're compelled to see where this guy goes uh, throughout the course of the show, which is the exact opposite of the, I think, experience you have with Riku in the first show. Yes, couldn't say it better. I think that's totally true. And, you know, some of this is going to sound like we're damning with faint praise, like they wrote a protagonist. And like, the, yes, that is kind of the bare minimum for making a TV show, right? But it's not just that they wrote a protagonist. This is a good, this is a really good yes. character. I honestly think he's like a very memorable Gundam boy. I think he's, I think one of the things I really like is that it is not a character that is in any of the other build shows. Because mm -hmm. Build Fighters try is trying to recreate a lot of the character dynamics from Build Fighters, and a lot of that falls flat or flatter than it was in Build Fighters. And then Build Divers is sort of like, man, if you took, say, Iori and just sapped all personality out of him, you would roughly get Riku. But like that is like the the, the clear inspiration without any of the actual sort of talent that goes into that. And Hiroto is very different he you know as you say more similar to someone from sword art online but not the kind of character we've seen in this specific type of gundam show um i love his character design i think it's mm -hmm. a really strong i actually think about this about all the characters in the show whereas the character designs i think are kind of ugly and bad in build divers one i think they're really interesting here there's something particularly i mean you've got that poncho he wears in the game which is great yes. and i love all of that there's something about the like tinge of his hair that it is black but it's drawn as sort of this gray, sometimes it's like really dark navy blue, but there's something about that that uh, I've, I actually have liked since I first saw the poster for this show, mm -hmm. which is a very memorable like piece of promo art, uh, and I've liked it ever since. I think it's just a very strong character design. It's a really good version of that sort of like loner, quiet sort of protagonist archetype in the same way that Gundam has done before with, I would say, like Double O, or Iron-Blooded Orphans, where you have these characters who I could see them being the, basically the protagonist from Gundam Wing, the like shitty version of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and instead they wind up being very interesting and having a lot of personality and motivation. And I think Hiroto is like that. And I think his various relationships are the core of the show. You have obviously his past relationship with Eve, which is mostly felt as an absence. You have the three people on his team that he comes to know. And then you also have Hinata, um, the girl that he is friends with in the real world, who is a really cool character and a really great side of the show, because this is something they also do right from the beginning on this show, is that they establish that there is a real world that the characters go back to when they're not in the game. And they have things like parents and friends, and all of that reflects in on what they do in the game, which is somehow something Bill Divers just completely forgot to do in 25 mm -hmm. episodes, and I think is a very strong part of Rerise. Yeah, and I think one of the big things with Hidoto is that is that you have that broader sort of world that he's set in, right? Because so much, and this is a big part of the Digimon-y feel of the show, so much of about it is like exploring the kind of porous boundaries between what we call the real world and what is the like digital world in Digimon or the virtual world or GBM here. Um, and then of course, like in Build Divers Rerise, also in a very Digimon-y move, it complicates that by making the digital world literally also a real world. And that it's like it also is like physical and it's a place and it has people that live there and stuff like that. Um, but so important to exploring that idea is to have Hidoto have relationships on both sides of that sort of boundary or the, that that curtain, you know, that he's got these sort of traditional 
relationships. He's got his parents who are not like major characters. You know, they're not featured as much as say, you know, Say's parents from the original Build Fighters, but are still important characters and are like flavorful, you know, particularly his dad. I love that like, you know, it's not a thing that ever comes up in a plot related sense uh, that he's an author who's sort of like struggling to come up with ideas or like has, has this deadline and you know, that it's not a thing where, you know, it's not a Chekhov's gun kind of scenario where he's able to write a plot at the very end that somehow affects the world or something. It's just like a nice flavorful detail um, that sort of really colors in the relationship uh, that he has at home. Then he has his, you know, your kind of stock childhood friend character, not, not in a like that she's a bad character, but this character role is very sort of standard in Hinata. Um, and that, you know, that is his sort of like standard real world relationship. I think it's very intentional that they frame it through such a sort of, uh, you know, standard expected character archetype as the, the boy in his childhood friend. And the boy had like this magical girl that was the one he was actually like romantically interested in um, and, and all that kind of stuff is a very sort of classic anime sort of setup but they go in different ways with it. Like they don't use Hinata in the standard way. Like she never becomes like overtly jealous of Eve or anything like that. It feels like a much more kind of realistic friend, like neighborly kind of grew up together friend relationship that they have. And that she has relationships with Hinata's parents and she calls them by their like given name and San, which is such a good detail um, that like it tells you so much about her relationship with like Hinata's family and how close she is not just with him, but his whole family. And they're able to so efficiently sketch out that whole picture of his home life just in episode one that it it gives you the full sense of that Hiroto is a person. He's not just a piece on the sort of narrative board they've constructed to move around, which is what Riku always felt like. It's like, oh, we have this story we're going to tell. So now Riku must move here and say this and do these things. Hirato feels like a full person who has an actual life and has like a history and experiences that motivate him and push him. And organically through that is where the rest of the show is generated. Um, and that's and that's not just a like sort of a standard thing that shows need to do. I think that's a thing that like good shows still tr struggle with a lot that this show feels like does utterly effortlessly um, that you just fully buy into his character, his home life, his struggles and his dynamics um, over the course of that first episode. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, there's stuff like that where you go, oh, they didn't just get a competent person to write this. They got the guy who did Unicorn Gundam and Hathaway. Yeah. Like, and obviously those are adaptations. They're adaptations of light novels, which is a much bigger lift than adaptations of manga, to be fair. Uh -huh. So, you know, but there's still, you know, and, and obviously all the other stuff he's done. There's just a, like, there's a real passion for storytelling that runs through this that I don't ever feel in Build Divers. And, and you know, the Riku comparison is a good one because Riku does not exist outside of GBN in Build Divers. Uh -huh. He just doesn't. He sometimes exists outside of it in the Gundam base in Odaiba that he hangs out in, right? Yeah, but he or never... they'll have a, a scene with some exposition at the school that they'll be at for like 30 seconds, but it's just them talking about what they're about to do in GBN, and then they're in GBN in the next cut, you know? Yes. No, you know, this is what makes Hiroto strong from the start, and I think so much of this show strong is how it is contextualized within a world and i think this goes for all of the other characters too as we go along 
you know, when we get to the episode where we meet all the characters in the real world, it does exactly what you would want this kind of show to do and have there be a meaningful difference between who they are in person and who they are in the game. And that is a fun thing. And then because Hirato is the only one who doesn't have that meaningful difference, that tells you something about him, that he does not go into the game to be another person the way some of these others do. And that's an interesting thing about him. Whereas in Gundam Build Divers, everybody is just themselves in the game. Yes, um, and it is a big missed opportunity in that show that is identified this one finds like the, all those spaces to actually explore those ideas and use it for their characters. I think for, for Hinoto, the moment that like they, in the first episode, that really sold me on the character, and, and it's like a consistent thing throughout the whole show, is that so much of the show is about like sitting and watching Hirato watch what is happening, right? He's a character that doesn't really have a lot of lines compared to other Gundam protagonists. Um, you know, he's much more in the sort of Setsuna FCA um, space that they did a lot of the same stuff with Setsuna in Double O Gundam, where it's so much about him quietly observing the world and the people around him, and you kind of watching and looking at his eyes and his physicality and kind of trying to determine what is he feeling and what is he doing here and like how is he changing as a character and he's so much your sort of like window into the rest of the world even while he is you know intentionally kept a certain like aloof distance from the audience because you don't have the full access to what his backstory is and what exactly his trauma is until fairly deep into the show but you the show is good enough at giving you enough information that you're able to sort of intuit broadly what he's feeling but in episode one, there's a moment where, uh, you know, he's going into the alley with Kazumi where he's been kind of dragged there and Kazumi is just like being very annoying in that kind of Kazumi way that that character is particularly early on. And he's just like bragging and ranting and doing all this stuff. And Hiroto quietly, without saying anything, opens up his like in-game menu, goes over to like log out, presses log out and hovers over the like, are you sure button to say yes. And that's when Kazumi mentions a thing about the mission he heard about that he grabs Hirato's attention because he wants to he's exploring GBN in this sort of like vain attempt to try to find Eve as we know later that's like he knows is never going to work um and that's such a great moment of of like authenticity that this is something that they've thought through the way the game works they've thought through the way that people interface with games um and that in the actual psychology of someone like Hirato where he's not the hero Yui I'm a loner, but I'm so cool. He's like, I'm a loner because I'm like sad and awkward and I don't know how to connect with people. Um, And that's something that that kind of person does is he's like about to just like ghost this dude because why not? It's a video game. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to log out in the middle of his sentence. Um, And that was a moment immediately where I like related so deeply to him because it's just like, it's something where if you're someone who's way into video games and the kind of nerdy shit, like Hirato, like you probably have had an experience like that um, in the way that you interface with like the digital world and digital relationships where you take liberties in, in being able to ghost or whatever like platform you're on that in real life obviously would not be able to work. And it's one of the safety nets you get in the digital world. Now you connect to people. And like that's it's such a well-observed detail. They just quietly throw in there. And that's, I think, the starkest one that's in episode one. But there's lots of stuff like that with Hiroto throughout, particularly the first half of the show, where they really display how how complete his psychology is and how relatable it is and how connected it is to the video game kind of world and character they've built. It really is amazing. Even though this show 
does so much less with GBN as a game than Build Divers does because so much of it is on Eldora. It plays with the idea of video games infinitely more, you know, effectively than Build Divers did. That moment, I think, is a really good sort of like microcosm of how it, you know, does this stuff of it really feels like a relatable moment where like, yes, this is how video games work and this is how people interface with them. And then it takes that very relatable thing and uses it as a moment of character building for Kazumi, for Hiroto, and to set up the plot that we're about to dive into. And they do a lot of that, you know, throughout. Like, the entire first season of the show, the joke on Eldora is that it's obviously not a video game to the Uh viewer who has a bigger sort of omniscient view of things. But Kazumi and the others think it is because of course to them they've only experienced it as a video game and so when Kazumi will turn to like the the furries and he'll say like man this is there's a lot of dialogue in this cutscene it's Uh funny because it's playing on that distance Gundam Build Divers 1 could not make that joke because it didn't have that firm an understanding of what a video game is right yes exactly that that it's it's the biggest mystery potential for that first show is that it didn't take advantage of any of the things that the genre affords it um and re-rise fully takes advantage of it like it takes advantage of it than a lot of like other shows in this genre like it's one of the things that i think is really oppressive about it is that if you even if you have no connection to gundam whatsoever if you like video game isekai stuff if you like sword art online and log horizon overlord any of that kind of stuff like, you will really enjoy this show. And that's one of the things that puts it much more in the Gundam Build Fighters camp, right? Because Gundam Build Fighters was the exact same way. Whether you know jack shit about Gundam, doesn't matter. Do you like sports anime? Gundam Build Fighters is a great sports anime. This is a great video game isekai. Um, and because it is using all the different kinds of elements of the genre intelligently for all the different pieces of the story, the plot, the themes, and the characters, and the setting that it can use it for. Um, it's so it's good great. at it. It's so good at it, Sean, that I made this tweet near the end of the the first season of the show, the first thirteen, that like it was it's it's I think it's obvious to anyone watching from episode one that Eldora is yes. a real place, and I think mm-hmm. that is intentional. The show is not trying to hide that from you; it's just waiting to reveal it to the characters, right? And but I was thinking throughout, even if it wasn't, even if this really was just a video game game story campaign that they were playing. I would be okay with that because the show's characters are so good. And before it is revealed to them that what they are doing is with real flesh and blood little furry people, it's so good at building the relationships between the characters. And I think giving you a sense of what is the value of relationships made in a digital space. And I think it does that with all four characters over the course of that first season. It gives them little, it kind of goes through each of them and does a little, you know, multi-episode arc with them, with Hirotos kind of going throughout. And I think it gives you a real sense of what they get out of this and why it is meaningful, even if it isn't real, which means that when they learn it is real, everything is compounded so beautifully heading into the second half of the show. And I think that's one of the things that is most magical about this show to me and feels like kind of a, a crazy hat trick that a show shouldn't be able to pull off. Yeah, but because I think it's like, it's it's using like really sort of primal metaphorical storytelling incredibly effectively in that way, right? That you're 100% right. It, I think the part of the point of doing it that way is to have that exact effect to make the audience so invested in it that it doesn't matter whether or not these are like AI dog people or whatever 
or their actual like sapient like independent life forms on another planet or whatever this that like the real world scenario is for eldera at a certain point it doesn't matter that much because it's like it's impossible to tell the difference because it's like because these are relationships these people have built in this digital space and that is as those relationships whether it's through a virtual medium or the actual physical medium are just as real right like hirito's relationship with the other members of the build divers and with uh freddie who is one of the members of the build divers right that he, as he constantly asserts and very rightly so freddie is um is just as real as his friendship with hinata um there's no meaningful difference there uh and so the the show is like using that plot structure to convince you of that and then once it has fully convinced you of that it then sort of it makes it the the reality of the show right that so now that the audience fully believes that like oh this is important you know i think the moment the space laser hits the planet your stomach so drops because it's like even though they haven't confirmed whether or not these are like real things you know how much this is going to hurt for everybody involved because of like the incredible loss that's been occurred um and that's such a gut punch moment that once that gut, gut punch moment happens metaphorically the story turns into and this is all real because because we live in a digital world because our digital relationships and our life in a virtual space is as real and important and impactful to us as people as the things we encounter in our physical world and so once that like connection has been fully made the story makes it literal within its setting um which again it's like is the digimon style trick that they do and it's so effective and it's so powerful um and, and it's that kind of really you can only do that if you under if you get those fundamentals perfect right if you really understand all the different sort of pieces that your story is turning on and what your like ultimate objective is about what you're trying to say with your show you have to get all that right to make that kind of turn so elegantly as they do um at the mid season switch i i 100 agree and i think along the way you know you have these two sort of little multi-episode arcs with parviz and then with kazumi um and I think both of those are so good at selling me on these characters in this setting because, you know, so Pars is that he is afraid to fly again, even though he has this really cool dragon Gundam that is one I will absolutely build one day. It's kind of out of stock right now, but it's fucking great. The Morgiana, well, that's not, that's his nickname for it. Um, it's the Valkalander is his cool uh, dragon SD Gundam. And, but he's afraid to fly it. And, over the course of this adventure, he is able to like shed that fear. And this is before we've gotten his explicit backstory, knowing that he is paralyzed and in a wheelchair. And this is before we have the explicit confirmation that he is doing this for the benefit of real flesh and blood beings on this planet. But the things he learns are completely real. The confidence he gains is completely real. The like hope he gains from his surroundings is completely real. And that has such an impact. And I think Kazumi's is, is beautifully done too, in that he has this like, you know, he idolizes this character, Captain Zeon, which is incredibly funny. This show can tell jokes, unlike yes. Build Divers. Um, and it's very funny. But you also see like that he has this sort of like, and it's there in the like digital persona he's built, this very like toxic you know, standalone hero who always like wants to grab the glory, wants to get the kills, doesn't care about teamwork. And, you know, my God, I've seen the story about the, the, the you know, the stuck up jock who has to learn teamwork. That is in every kid's show. It's in most show shows. It's just everywhere. And it is really beautifully done here because you see the actual like 
sort of like psychic suffering that that has put him through. Mm -hmm. And then you see him overcome it and come out better the other side. And whether it's just a video game they're playing and it's all quote unquote fake, or whether it is on this actual planet where they're saving people, that lesson he has learned about himself is equally real. And I think they do that kind of thing over and over in, in really beautiful ways. Yeah. Because like, they this show is like interested in actually exploring that dynamic that we have in in our life with our like the digital versions of our existence which is that we try to construct a more idealized version of ourselves right so you try to construct something that is like this perfect image of who you want to be and what you want to be perceived as and particularly when you can do it through a medium where you can construct your own visual identity on top of everything else right you're you this is a thing that people actually do and i think kazumi's like really zeroes in on that concept because he's someone who's so captured by the sort of like influencer lifestyle right this is a thing that if you're a teacher working with kids like you are exposed to a lot is how much like that has become such a big thing like it's it's such a big part of like certain kids like aspirations and stuff is because they see these sort of like self-made pull yourself up by your bootstraps stories of whether it's like on twitch or like whatever world you're in right if it's video game stuff you see a video game streamer on twitch um it might be like someone who does like makeup tutorials on youtube whatever um you know movie reviews comic book stuff anything you know it, it, there are so many different avenues where people can create their own weird pockets for success online but of course the reality is, as with anything like that, whether it's YouTube or it's becoming an actor or it's be trying to be a pro athlete, like the number of people who actually find success in those pursuits is like 0.001% or something of the people that are trying to find that kind of success. Um, and so Cosme is struggling with this feeling of he, he believes so much in his heart that he is this big, strong, muscly, like confident person that's going to inspire everybody and get the million subscribers or like the you know the thing in the last episode you see an image of like him after the end with shaking hands with captain zeon and a billboard that says like first video that got one billion views basically is what it says in japanese it's like he's so in his heart believes that he just is that person um and when he's not able to produce those results he constantly is saying like this isn't me this isn't who i am this is not who i am and keeps pushing himself into this darker and darker place um and then him ultimately his story being about having to accept that like he's not that not only is he not that person but that nobody's not that person even captain zeon isn't really that person um and that and the, the fact that that turn becomes him becoming a tank in video game terms right that he is now see is someone that's not the guy who does all the damage and gets the glory kills he designs his whole machine in the second half to be someone who takes damage who like attracts enemy attention. He's got the big shield um, and he learns in the fact that his like humbling comes through also the like real video game role of being a tank, which is a like humbling role to have in the party and not someone who's like chasing glory. Like that's such a beautiful fusion of all the different kind of cultural pieces that they are lo looking at in this show um, and, and putting that all together in Cosme's story arc is so cool. It's it really is beautiful. Like uh, now that we're talking about it, that might be my favorite thing in the whole show is uh -huh. Kazumi's arc because I yeah. think it is it's very real and it's very contemporary and I obviously did not grow up and go to high school in sort of influencer culture as we have now as your students have, Sean. 
But I did grow up, you know, in when like blogging was getting big and YouTube was starting. And I remember, you know, really chasing like I wanted all the things I did online. And I wrote movie reviews and all stuff. And I had, I think, a level of success that I should have just been happy with, which was I had a good audience reading me and like what we have with the podcast today. But I always kind of wanted it to get bigger. Um, and this brought back some memories of that. And like, I think when you put it in the specific influencer moment, I think it feels very finger on the pulse in that. There is stuff in those Kazumi episodes that made me uncomfortable. And I mean yes. uncomfortable in a good way that a story wants you to be uncomfortable. Like when he's saying, this isn't me, this isn't me. And there's something there that is like so raw and vulnerable and ugly. And you're like, oh God. But then you also go, but I get it. I've been there. I know that. I know people who have been there. Um, and then I think that turn is just so lovely and of course, when you get the actual reveal of his body in the physical world, he's just a kid, you know, yeah. he's just a teenager. I love that. If this was Gundam Bill Divers 1, it would have just been a, a burly adult dude and it would have made no sense. But of course, he is a kid. It's all a put on. But that put on becomes very real when, as you say, they, they do this humbling for him. And he not only embraces that tank role, but thrives in it. The machine yes. he builds is brilliant. He's got a real talent for it. And I love that, too, that he like... Once he accepts this part of himself, he finds actual talents that are really very meaningful and like will lead him to all sorts of places. Um, I just think it's it's very beautiful, and and I think he's the best example of that in this show, uh, and I think the one that is most finger on the pulse of something in the world today. But I think all the characters exhibit that in different ways. Yeah, and it's one of the things that makes the first half of the show particularly very uh, electric is that it just has this very like structured okay, we're like going through each character and getting their backstory and then getting them kind of like having to confront this core trauma. And I'm with you. I think like Cosmies is probably the most impressive of like those overall character arcs to me. Partially because they do a really good job of, I think, making the character like legitimately um, like kind of unlikable early on. Like he's an, he's an intentionally annoying character and it's a hard thing to do. Um, I think is to present the audience someone who's like who is actually annoying like he's he's you can tell he's full of shit um, and the show doesn't like the show like is aware of it but there but the show's not totally calling him on it yet in the first like two or three episodes until you start focusing more on him as a character it becomes clear that like the show is fully aware of the fact that despite all of his boasting he is producing zero results in any of the fights and it's when the show like acknowledges that directly it's like oh he's literally destroyed like zero machines everyone else has taken out a bunch of the enemies and he's done nothing despite the fact that he's boasting and is acting like he's the leader and then once like he's sort of been fully established as this kind of like unlikable like boasting fucking jock prick who thinks he's so great but is actually nothing and the show actually dives into his psychology and then has him come out the other end changed he ends up being one of the best characters in like the most likable relatable characters in the whole show and that's like a great writing trick to be able to go through that whole spectrum with that character that i think he is the character that your relationship changes by far the most with over the course of the show if you want to really dive into how what an eye for detail this show has, follow the trajectory of the little flag he has on his mobile mm -hmm. suit sometimes. Because early on you see it on his like Gunstagram page and stuff that he's posing with this like sort of fisherman's flag. And you think at first that just looks like something you would unlock in GBN and throw on your thing, right? It's just some random like emote. 
And but then when we meet him in the real world, we see that out where he lives is that flag in that boat. And then you start to realize, oh, that's not he's hanging out there. He lives here. That's his boat. That's his dad's boat. We get some backstory that like he grew up in this fishing village. He says near the end, like, I was good at a lot of different things and people expected a lot of me. And you realize, oh, this creativity and spark didn't come out of nowhere. It curdled in adolescence into this like jealousy and need to be great. And now he's come out on the other side and become the person I think the people in his village probably expected him to be. And mm -hmm. so much of that is symbolized through this little flag that you follow over the course of the show. Um, man, that is one of the starkest differences between this and something like Build Divers, right? Is that you can't even begin to fathom a level of that kind of nuanced character work going on completely in the background, never drawing attention to itself. It's never the focus of a scene, but it's a beautiful little thread woven throughout his episodes. Yeah. Well, it's like one of the, the biggest differences between Rewrite and the original is that it has the confidence to let characters be unlikable, let characters make mistakes, let yeah. like like the audience feel actively active like distaste for characters in certain moments because they're being cowardly or because they're fucking up or because they're being boastful. Um, and then it allows those moments to happen and then works through those moments so that the characters can grow. A thing that the original show just had no confidence in, no idea of at all. It didn't ever attempt it. And it's part of the problem with shows like that and how they come across as extremely bland. And I would put Build Fighters Try in this category as well. I think Try struggles with having the confidence to let that happen. Um, is that it just means that like when characters are sort of generically likable all the time, I think for me, I end up turning on them really hard and I like end up hating them in a way that if you let them be thorny and kind of frictious characters at certain moments, like that's the thing that gets people actually attached to them, not just having them be all smiles and having them win every single fight and all that kind of stuff is like trying to make the character actively likable and happy all the time is not a key to having the audience agree with you on that portrayal. I agree, and I and I like try more than you, but I would completely agree on something like Kamiki Sekai in that show. Yeah, is I I enjoy the character design and the performance, and I I think it's fun. But there is something to he never like he has fairly obvious character flaws that he never has to improve on. There's yeah. no point where he has to like even something simple like learning how to build a Gundam or learning how to be a team player are like easy stories you could tell there that would make all of his likable qualities shine much brighter, right? Yeah. Uh, and they don't take advantage of those things. And this show is is awash in it. You know, Parv is, we haven't focused on his story as much, but I think it goes in that same direction where he is sort of like he's, and man, this is one that is so archetypal that you've seen in a million shows and games is the sort of like cowardly, um, but really it's not cowardice as much as it's like insecurity. And he's the very insecure boy on the team who doesn't sort of want to assert himself. And, and the journey is sort of in the first part is to assert himself um, and to sort of overcome some of his fears. And it's really beautifully done. And I think part of that is because they let it be a little extreme. They let it be a little uncomfortable. Um, and I also think they let trauma be deeply felt in this show. There's something I I really, you know, on paper, waiting as long as they do to reveal Parr's backstory and particularly Hirotos is a weird choice. But I think it works so well in this show because it means by the time you get the actual nuts and bolts explanation of what happened to them, you know what it what their trauma feels like. And that is the more important thing. So, you know, Hirotos trauma, I think, is very deeply felt in the little flashes and kind of these very lyrical 
editing moves they do with the inserts. And I think Pars in, in that those two episodes where they're defending the village and he has to get the Morgiana to fly. Well, Morgiana wants to fly. Par has to be able to embrace it. You get, you know, there's a vague implication that something happened with flight in a game or the real world somewhere. But more you just get the sense of that sort of psychic trauma. And it is very deeply felt, again, before you ever get the explanation that, you know, oh my god, this thing, you know, robbed this kid of his legs and all this stuff, right? Yeah, and it's the thing where the story's so well told that when the reveal happens, it's like, oh, it, it, that he's paralyzed from an actual, like, accident involving flying. Like, that doesn't feel like it's like a twist or a surprise. You see it happen, and it's like, by the when you see it, it's like, this is a kind of moral, even if you hadn't exactly landed on that, it's basically exactly what you, like, sort of were set up to feel. That's like, it, it, it registers so accurately for the character, and it ties into very like meaningfully uh the the all the virtual stuff right that this is a thing this is like a very real thing of like it's one of the therapeutic aspects of video games is that for people who have disabilities or have like limited mobility or anything like that video games give them a certain like outlet that other media doesn't allow and then obviously like i would imagine that that is like expanded in many ways in like a more virtual reality even than uh, uh like a tv video game but that's like a real world thing and it's like an actual issue and it's something that's an interesting element to explore. Like Sword Art Online has a story arc that's fairly similar to that and it's very effective there as well because it's just a smart story. It's also very Digimon-ish, right? Because it's very much the Digimon approach is like trying to find real world issues that actual, and that for Digimon, particularly specifically children, but that actual people face and then using the story in a metaphorical way to explore those actual issues like divorce and adoption and that kind of stuff. So with Digimon Adventure 1 deals with some of its characters. Um, but yeah, like seeing it actually fully sort of explored as a real character arc and not the thing that Gundam Build Divers does that's like vaguely offensive that just throws it off as like a random line in the last couple of episodes is like a justification for like the Nazi weasel to try to murder the like 13 <laughs> year old girl right and he's just saying like oh well there are some people who you know they're disabled and then this is the only world where they can express themselves or whatever it's like well we haven't seen any of those people like if that's an important thing that we that the audience should feel invested in don't use disability as a fucking prop in your awful story like actually explore it as a like a person in a character arc um and it's like a thing that's like kind of offensive at the end of the first show that here it's like okay yes like this is an interesting story and interesting stories to tell and interesting characters to explore with this setting and with this lens uh and they think they do a fantastic job with par and i think one of the things that they is so successful is that because they hold off showing you exactly what the trauma is and exactly what effect it's had on his real world physical body it means that he's not a character that's like fully defined by his disability because you don't know him through his disability um and so it's one of the things that i think it means you don't see him that way uh and you kind of fully buy into the character regardless of whatever the specific backstory is by the time that that backstory has been revealed no and i think that's it's so true and it is one of the many areas where this show feels like the writer yasuyuki muto watched the original divers was disgusted by it identically to us and said like i'm gonna fix all of this because i would bet real world money par is a reaction to that thing at the end of mm -hmm. build divers it completely feels like they they saw that and said you know that was an unacceptable sort of invocation of that idea let's do it like extremely fulsomely like as well as i've ever done seen it done on a show like this right mm -hmm. of and i think it is so key as you say sean that like 
by the time we meet the real bodied person and learn that he is disabled, that is the 10th most interesting thing about him, right? That yeah. is not something that defines him at all. You know, we, we literally meet him through, he has the most sort of like radically changed body in, in that he's got the tail and he's embraced some of these like, you know, the he is kind of a furry like the people on the planet, right? Um, yeah. And all of that stuff is is cute and fun and you see how creative a character he is, right? And that he loves the sort of creation aspect of all of this. He's built a fucking dragon and it's sick as shit. You know, all of that kind of stuff um, that I really love. And, and you know, I also just... that The chemistry of the team is so good at activating a lot of this stuff too. It, it is so well considered on all those levels. Yeah, and then one thing also to note with like the three characters we've talked about so far is that all three of them um, are voiced by voice actors that, particularly when this came out, were f basically rookies. Um, yes. The guy, uh, Kobayashi Chiaki, who voices Hiroto, has been the lead in a couple of shows uh, that have come out after Build Divers that I haven't uh, watched yet. I really want to watch this show called Moriarty the Patriot that's supposed to be very good. That's where Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes story is the main character, and Moriarty is played by that actor. Um, and it's a show I've been wanting to watch. Now I really want to watch it because he's so good as Hiroto. Um, but then also the actor for Kazumi Masaki Mizunaka and the actor for Parv, uh, Par, uh, Mayu Miyami, all, both of them also rookie voice actors. And it's the first time that Gundam has done that with main characters in a while. Um, since like G-Reco was the last time we did that with a bunch of main characters because Tomino really likes that. Um, and it's a really good showcase for all those actors. You know, none of them have the like sort of raw Ghibli-esque quality. Like they're not being used or deployed in that fashion. Um, they feel like conventional Japanese voice actors, but it's cool to have a show that it's not like, you know, I'm not watching it and I'm like, oh, I've seen this person in this, this, that, and the other thing. Like the main character in the original Build Divers is the voice actor that plays Subaru, the main character in ReZero, which is one of the most popular isekai shows. And he's in a bunch of other stuff also. Uh, and it's cool to have for those three characters in particular, they're three of the leads and they're voice actors I had not seen in anything. I had not seen any of their other shows yet. Well, I, I, I wanted to call this out too, Sean, because I was looking at uh, Chiaki Kobayashi's list of credits, because it is, I think all three of these are amazing performances, um, and it's so funny with Kobayashi, this really was his first lead role, because when you look mm -hmm. through these, it's like, uh, his first thing ever was like, in Case Closed, he's Baseball Club Junior, in, <laughs> cells, in cells at Work, he is Killer T-Cell Number One, and the Red Blood Cells. In That Time I Got Reincarnated as a Slime, he is a Goblin in Episode 2. So he had been kind of around the fringes, and then just really commanding, excellent lead performance. The one that blew me away most is uh, Masaki Mizunaka, who plays Kazumi. I would have sworn I'd heard him in something else because it is such a full-bodied, like, confident, big, deep-voiced performance. Um, and I'm like, oh, who did they get to do this? And I'm looking it up, and I'm like, oh, no, it's it's a it's a newcomer, basically. And that's super cool, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's just something I, I appreciate that it's fun to... It's just one of the things of also the show is so new, right? That it's like you're getting... Yeah. Like, they feel like there are people from, like, a new batch of voice actors coming up. Um, you know, every like four to five years, you get kind of like a new chunk of actors that come in that play the leads in the kind of smaller budgeted shows and stuff like that. Not to say this is a super small budget show, but it's not Kimetsu no Yaiba or something like that, you know. Right. Um, and and it's it's fun, you know, because because since we started doing Weekly Suit Gundam, I don't have as much time to watch 
like new new anime all the time so i don't watch because i'm you know i'm rewatching all of our gundam shows so it's cool to be like oh right yeah that's right in the past couple of years while we've been doing this gundam there is this new generation of actors that is coming up and playing the leads in some of these shows uh, that i have no real exposure to and that's fun yeah it's very cool um and my who's the character we haven't talked about yet uh also a cool character the only one voiced by someone who's like uh, of the main four who's done a yes. bunch of other stuff my uh fuchigami um and or sorry the actress's name is mai the character in the game is or in the show is may which yes. is confusing um but yes may is our l diver of the group she is our digital lady and again just this show makes so many like clear i think like interjections on what build divers did and one of those i feel like to just put a character in the main team who is an l diver and can actually like build a character around that i know we've got sarah in the original but they never really make her a character no. uh this show does a a much better job with that yeah no it's it's one of the things that the show very feels like it goes out of its way to sort of like actually do something with the l diver concept you know one it i like that it's not a major element of the show but i do appreciate that the show does go out of its way to try to give an explanation for how the L divers came about and it's you know that in this alien planet like there was the super advanced race and they became digital beings and somehow through that process you know they ended up ngbn and sort of being reincarnated as what we know as L divers so it's not just like magically just sapient ai just <laughs> just generated randomly in this mmo was such a ridiculous thing um, that that having aliens be involved actually makes it significantly more plausible and like explainable. Um, so I appreciate that they you know they went out of their way to just like give you a little bit of that to make it make a little bit more sense. Um, there's obviously there's nothing they can do for the like the fact that just like nobody knows what L divers are even like it, that like it just doesn't seem to have had a significant impact on society. I just think like the show is kind of cornered to like it's like well we just have to do that even if it's insane like the fact that uh nanami has no idea what l divers are and she has to like look it up online she googles it it's the, like that's how she learns about them is like <laughs> utterly crazy the idea that someone would not be aware of ai life forms um having appeared in this or hinata uh, sorry i got the character's name wrong um it's like a different character um but hinata having to look that up uh is very funny but you know you could it's easy to look past that because it's something that like the it's a sin of the old show that they just kind of roll with um but yes may is an awesome character they like really use the full nature of the l diver stuff and i particularly really love all the stuff they do with her in hirato and i think their relationship especially with as you get deeper in and you and like they reveal at the end that she is like kind of his daughter in a way right she's sort of like a reincarnation of eve or whatever so she's like symbolically born from his relationship with eve um and kind of carrying that on in his feelings um and the way that she kind of is a mirror reflection of hidoto and his sort of complicated issues in the way that he kind of closes off his emotions feels like is reflected in the way that may kind of shuts herself off um and and, and is trying to explore what it is to feel emotions and stuff um, I think all of that is handled very elegantly. Oh, beautifully. I mean, one of the most beautiful moments in this, or frankly, any other Gundam show, is when Hirato breaks down at the end of his two-episode flashback, yeah. and she comes over and kisses him on the cheek where his where his tears are, like, coming down, um, and invites him to cry. I mean, it's just unbelievably beautiful. Like, there's just... And there's stuff like that that I think these characters 
are able to do. Uh, she also just kicks ass. I really yeah. they they imply they like imply this in the you can see a little bit of it in the final episode of Build Divers that like when Sarah goes back into GBN with her like gun platform, she has this like sort of like big mech robot body. Um, but they don't really do anything with that. They take that for May and run with it because when they do the reveal that she has the mm-hmm. the Wadom as her main sort of suit, which is awesome. We got to talk about the mobile suits in this show because yes. oh my god, they're good. But she has that as her main suit. But then like it breaks when they're fighting um, one of the enemies, and so she gets out in the like big robot suit and does this really cool like hand to hand martial arts fight, and she's doing flips and shit. They make such cool use of that, um, and there's things that they're they're able to do with that. And I also like. That even though she is an L-diver and has this gunpla body in the real world, she also is different in the real world. Mm-hmm. Because her costume is not how she looks. She has this different sort of like dress on that her like guardian has made for her. But clearly like she's like chosen it and likes that. And there's stuff like that that's just very fun that they're able to do. Um, even though I still think the idea of, the, I don't know why they didn't build them bigger bodies. But you know, it's, it's still fun. They yeah. make what they can out of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's another thing that, like, they inherit from the previous show that's weird. But here, like, I love that they actually use it, right? It's not just, yes. like, a little thing. I th- one of the funniest sections of the show, I think, is there's that little scene uh, where she's in Maggie's bar. And she's got, like, a little dollhouse that's, like, yes. up on the bar. And that's where she lives. And, like, the fact that they actually explore what it is for her to kind of, like, live in, quote-unquote, the real world. Which, of course, to her is not the real world. Um, it's like this weird world she sometimes has to go back to and be in this little toy body. Um, like they explore that and like how she like interacts and survives. I I think it's like adorable the way she like rides on people's shoulders and stuff. And the fact that she is like this like sort of what in in anime you you know she's like a, an Ayanami Ray type character like a Kudete is kind of like what it would be referred to. Um, where it's like she's very cool on the outside and doesn't show a lot of emotion. Like I think that makes the little thing like adorable in a way that is like fun. Where like with Sarah, she's so like expressive and emotional and happy all the time that it it doesn't play. Like it doesn't create like the contrast. I think the contrast of the yeah whatever I'm small. What's up? Like her attitude, like that's, right. like that's really interesting, and and the contrast there of her being a little tiny, but her not giving a shit and being like cool and kind of standoffish, that's a fun thing to put into a show. Um, I would still would probably prefer her to like just have a normal sized android body or like only exist through screens or something would probably make more sense. But they have fun with what the, the kind of like the context they were given from the previous show and use it to its like fullness. One hundred percent. That little. We don't see a ton of her daily life, but she lives with McGee, and and there's that scene where she's in her dollhouse, and he's having a drink at the bar, and she comes out, and she has a little glass with something, (laughs) and they clink, she clinks the little glass against the big glass. There's just, you get a sense of an entire sort of, like, life lived between these two Mm -hmm. in that moment. And also, man, I kind of love the choice that the only character from the original series that this show invests anything into is Maggie. Mm-hmm. Um, who is, I think, the closest to being a good character in Build Divers 1. He's, I think he's tuned up too high, and you can see how in this show they dial him back just enough that he's not such an arch stereotype, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're able to make a person out of him, and they have fun with it. Um, but, like, even to the last couple episodes, they never, like, this show avoids Riku like the fucking plague. They use him at the bare fucking minimum, which is hilarious to me. But, Maggie, if they had to use one, I'm glad they used him. 
Yeah, and it makes sense. You know, Maggie is is the exposition person from the first show, so it's like he yeah. slots it. It's almost it's not the exact same thing, but it's kind of like reusing Ramba Rao and like Bill Divider's right. try. It's like it's just yeah. a very like useful character to have, um, because they're the character that they're they can just explain things to people and it works. Yes, um, so I liked all of that. Yeah, so the main four characters are great, but really it's the main five characters because we also have Freddy, and Freddy is wonderful. Freddy probably my favorite vocal performance on the show it's mm-hmm. i kakuma um yes. at first i was like oh they got ikue yutani that's cool <laughs> it was like my first reaction but it's not it's it's i kakuma who's done a lot of cool stuff uh she's edelgard in fire emblem three houses i did not realize yes. that she is rosaria also in uh, genshin impact oh nice nice so yeah but it hear, is... if you want to hear freddy but it's like a cool goth maid lady or goth uh, uh, nun lady <laughs> you can <laughs> you can play that character in genshin impact it's very yes, good she's, yeah, she's in a lot of stuff. Um, a newer voice actor, but not new, new. Um, and I think this is just a really cool performance. It very much, it definitely feels like the casting note was like an Ikue Otani type, uh-huh. in that it is kind of in that like Tony Tony Chopper range or something like that. Um, but I think it's a really cool performance. It's so, it's the kind of thing that could be obnoxious if it was in i think the wrong hands or the character was misused and instead it's very endearing and it's our core link to the world of eldera and i think there's a lot of cool stuff that comes out of it yeah freddy's just like so effectively grounds the show right in 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 this other world in eldera and like is the character that makes it all feel real um even when you're not it's not confirmed to be real it's like it's the relationship with freddy is the key thing because he's such a part of the group whenever they go there you know he's he's the you know he's the person who brings them in like he's the character that kind of initiates the sort of like real plot of the of the series um and so he ends up just being a key character that you have really immediate buy-in to and and yeah they they dial him in to the perfect amount where he's like fun and cute and really likable and not annoying in the way that a mascot character of calibrated inappropriately can get annoying um, you know, he's, he's, cause one thing is this is that like, it doesn't feel like they're, he's like consciously a mascot character, right? He like kind of fits into that role broadly speaking, but it's just, he's just a dog dude who lives on a planet full of other dog people. Like it's, he's not a mascot. It's just like totally normal for him. Um, right. and, and, uh, I like that. And one of my favorite things they do with him is, uh, when they come back in the second core, you have that whole first episode. That's I was going to mention like, that. Yeah, like a half recap, but not like... It's like the best version of a recap episode. That it gives you, if you had been away, right, and hadn't watched the show in the six months it was off the air, um, it, it gets you up to speed and reintroduces you to everything. But it does it through a unique lens where you see the events immediately preceding the show from Freddy's perspective, um, including a hilarious sequence where he watches uh, all the stuff from the original Build Divers show, and he's like amazed by it. And I don't know if it's intentional, but it so feels like a subtweet that, like, the only way someone could like Bill Divers is if they had literally never seen an anime or a TV show or any, like, any media ever before. Because then I would agree. That is, like, the one circumstance in which if you had never seen a TV show or a movie or anything like that in your entire life... And then you watch Gun and Bill Divers, it would blow your fucking mind. It would be crazy. <laughs> but if you this, have I watched, this, yes, if you have yeah, watched literally anything, this, that show is awful. Um, but yeah, I think it is like a really because I had the exact same thought when I watched the episode. <laughs> it's just like what the fuck? <laughs> it's like this is exactly it. 
This is exactly it. This is the only scenario in which someone can actually really like that first show. I it's so funny. I and I was going to mention this episode too because I think it's a really cool season premiere in that it it doesn't feel like you're watching a recap episode in that like it exists to like reuse footage because it actually reuses a very small amount of footage. Yeah. Um it's a lot of new stuff, but it does like bring you back up to speed through a new emotional lens and having it all be about Freddy makes it a very memorable episode and I think particularly the ending of him digging through the rubble to get back mm. to that platform to try to call the bill divers back is super cool. I also think the way Freddy kind of like reclaims the words of the title bill divers as like this like you know motto that he keeps using um and kind of giving you something to latch on to is really cool. I love the way I Kakuma um just says bill the divers like over and yeah. over again is very fun. Uh there's a line near it's it's i think in like episode 20 it's yeah it's the it's the it's the same moment when um hiroto finishes his flashback and is like crying and freddy says like and and he they're trying he's like trying to tell freddy like look we're not the real build divers and he's like no you're the only build divers to me and i'm like you're reviewing the show freddy yes. you're so right these are the only build divers um but i do love that entire relationship and i and i like that he like saw the Bill Diver stuff on GBN and he thought it was cool, but then he calls them into the world. And of course, what actually matters is the real relationships he makes with these people um, who, even if they fail, they're trying on his and his people's behalf. And so they're very close from the very beginning. Yeah. And, and I think my favorite scene with Freddy is at the very, very end of the show when he's like, uh, uh, they bring in Hinata, the childhood friend character into that world, which is a good, like a really good, thematic idea to do to connect those relationships up but then freddy's like oh so you're like so she's a secret member that was only in that other world like i'm only in this world that means this is the first time that all the build divers have been together and of course none of the build divers from the original show are here this is all of the build divers all of them right here the only build divers right here together for the first time ever and i'm like yes you're right freddy yes you are right <laughs> Freddy is uh, is the best critic of this show. If you want to know, you know, what to think about Rerise, Freddy, I think, just says it best in his lines. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No. And, you know, in general, I like a lot of the Elder characters. You know, there's very few of them who are as... No None of them are obviously as big as Freddy. But you have a lot of... You know, you have Jed in the first half who dies tragically in it. Just... It is so brutal what happens at the mid-season break. Uh -huh. um, but like Jed, they very much, I think, lay the groundwork for you being sad when Jed the Nissan uh, dies. And you have the other, the, the brother, I forget his name, but he's the blue dog who like wants to be, he kind of has a similar arc as Kazumi. Yeah, Stola. Stola, yeah. Stola like wants to be part of the resistance, but Jed is telling him like, you know, you should be, you know, a leader and there's like value in that. And then of course we see Stola learns the value of that. You have the girl dog who Kazumi sort of becomes really good friends with, if not more. There's all sorts of stuff that just like, they're a very like endearing faction. Even if I never thought we would have an entire Gundam show set on a planet of furries. Um, I'm glad that we did because I like these characters. Yeah, it was a thing that I had been curious about about the show because you know in screenshots and stuff I had always seen oh there's all these dog people and I like remembered that in the first couple of episodes of Gun and Build Divers that I watched when that show shortly after that show originally aired before I gave up on it um, that there were like some furry people like Tiger Wolf and stuff in there um, and I was like is this is that like the whole show and I thought in my head it's like there's no like there must be like the first arc of that show is like a bunch of NPCs and some like dog village in the game is which is like not entirely totally off base that my assumption but that that's like the whole show is a thing i really wasn't expecting going in 
Um, but it's smart. It's one of those things of where it, like it's not trying. The show's not trying to bite off more than it can chew. Like it like centers it very clearly on like a small group of characters in this world with all of our our dog friends. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's they're not like the most memorable characters in the world, but I think all of them, including like all like the little kids, like the old dude with his field um all of those characters like they're they're not like memorable enough that i'm going to remember all of their names um but memorable enough that like when they pop up in an episode and do a thing like ah yes it's this person like i want to see these people survive and thrive and be happy um in on their little planet absolutely and you know just a very i think also there's just a, a clear like sort of variety from your typical gundam character designs in there that is fun to have mm -hmm. and of course also it threads the needle very well of you can believe that these look like characters in a video game. So for that first half of the show, you can still buy that like dissonance between the the main characters and what's going on on, on Eldora, and they think it's just a video game. But then when it becomes its own planet, you're like, okay, this is a fun like alien species we're with, and I think that's a cool mm -hmm. turn as well. Um, and there's just man, you talked about the 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 old man who doesn't want to abandon his field. That is such a good turn early in the show where yeah. there's a two parter where their mission is to defend the village, and they're like, well. We can defend, and they do the like practice mission where everything just gets destroyed, but like enough of it is left that they win. And we've all been there in a video game, right? Uh -huh. Where like, for me, it's, I'm thinking of like the end of like a Fire Emblem game. Like, well, technically, I beat the game. All my units, but one, are dead. But uh -huh. I did beat the game. Do I go back and do it again, or do I say this is enough? I'm like, yeah, that's enough, right? And they're all sort of like, well, it's a video game, so it's enough. But there's something in the back of Hirato's head that he's like, but it's not enough. And so he starts replanning the mission, and they all kind of go in on it. And you can tell, I think part of what's going on there is subliminally, they know it's real, even if they don't think it is. And it's on multiple layers. It's real in that they themselves are not satisfied with doing poorly on it. And it's real in that there is this farmer guy who's really invested in this field, right? We don't want to get it destroyed. Yeah. And it's the thing that, like, I totally empathize with because it's it is like in in like the purely video game context i'm definitely like that in that like i will you know try to accomplish every single mission objective even if it's like oh this is this and that and this is optional and try to get like the best possible outcome um but i also think one of the things that's great about that those episodes is that they don't like it doesn't come off perfectly you know that like some of it is destroyed um, but like they do save m most of the village way more than they did in their original trial run. And that like, it communicates to all the people in that village, how much the build divers are actually fighting and how much they like actually care. Um, and that's, yeah, that's like a really great two-parter. Um, but I also think that is probably like my, some of my favorite action stuff in the show because it's very intentionally, it's very Samurai, Seven Samurais-esque or Seven Samurai-esque in that it is here we're defending this village from a group of invaders. Let's walk through the village. Let's create our plan. Let's like, then here you have the full simulation of it. Um, and then, you know, it's now let's try to execute on this full plan. And then here are like the couple things that go wrong and us having to compensate for it. It's just a really well-constructed action sequence, which I think is very typical of most of the show that it, it has a good head for like larger sort of like concepts for its action and its battles. That's a lot more than certainly going to build divers. It was just like, yeah, let's just like go do whatever and just like smash action figures together. And then build fighters try, we had a couple of decent action sequences, but it relied too much on the like, and then Sekai comes in and does his big punch and that saves the day. And that's how like every one of those fights ended at some point. Um, and uh, Re-Rise has a good head of every action sequence feels very different, very distinct. 
um and and i think they really lay that out particularly in that early like defend the village sequence absolutely this definitely feels like it is a gundam show when it comes to its action like this meets the level of quality that you want from a gundam show it's not the absolute best but it's often extremely impressive one thing we never mentioned with build divers this is the first i believe gundam show that has a separate credit for action director this Mm -hmm. and build divers both in the opening credits you'll see it it's written as in katakana action and then the word for director in kanji um and i didn't look up who that was but they did it on both of the diver shows there is a separate credit for the action director um i'm not sure who did that job on build divers because it's unremarkable but in re-rise very well done yeah i'm actually trying to look at to see if i can bring it up because i it's the person is uh masami obody let's see if they also did the original <laughs> show and they did also do the original show yeah i'm not sure what the like that specific job is although no it doesn't actually they worked on the first show but they are not listed as action director for the first show so yeah so i don't know exactly what that job or that credit entitles because i don't think i've ever seen that in another anime Um, yeah i mean these are very recent anime so maybe it's becoming more common and we don't know that but yeah it doesn't it's it's a new credit for gundam at the very least and you know i can kind of imagine what it entails but this this is re-rise is much more of a show where you see the credit action director and you can buy why it's there whereas uh-huh. on build divers i'm not sure why you would have someone else credited for that but no they do have a lot of fun with it and they have a lot of fun with it because um this is one of the best gundam shows if you're just talking about mobile suits like mm-hmm. this is fucking s tier if you're talking about the mobile suits my god this is phenomenal i think pretty much every major mobile suit that shows up in this i love particularly it's it's it would be cheating kind of to call all of hiroto's suits one gundam but if you just count the core gundam with all of its different parts as one gundam that is one of my absolute favorite gundams in the history of this franchise yeah, the core Gundam is awesome. That's another thing that feels super Digimon-esque to me. Like, it just feels like so much like, oh, I can imagine all the, you know, I mean, obviously they have the actual Gunpla and like the toys and stuff, but it's also the thing that the Digimon toys did and how they like Digivolve and stuff and like all the side Digivolutions and, st- and it's like, oh, this is the fire one and this is the water one or whatever. It's got that kind of quality to it, only it's a Gundam thing. It's like a much better version of what Gundam Age tried to sort of do with the Age system stuff, but ended up being a thing that, like, obviously was an important device for the nature of the video game Gundam Age, but in the actual TV show was, like, only occasionally used, and it was cool, but it was only, it was, like, two or three times over the course of, like, a season of that show or, like, a story arc would it actually, the Gundam Age thing come into play, whereas it's, like, a much fuller element of Hirota's entire presence and the constant, like, him having all these little, like, uh, you know, tubs, plastic tubs at his house that with like that are, like, taped up and covered over. Like, it's fucking John Wick's basement with all the guns and shit. <laughs> it's like, he's like, I gotta take this one out. Um, and this is, like, the crazy one that I never finished that's gonna take us into space. Um, like, I love that aspect of that. He's, he keeps on sort of, like, bringing out these different configurations. And then the payoff at the end of the show is fucking amazing. Where he slots in different ones from all the different suits and different arms and legs and shit. And uses it all together. Like, it hadn't even occurred to me that they would do that. And that was such a, like, as soon as it started happening, I'm like, oh, this is fucking genius. Um, what a, like, full use of that concept. 
um that that it's this modular gundam uh yeah i think the core gundam is just like a great idea a very classic kind of anime idea but executed at like a really really high level yes because you so you have the core itself which looks cool i really like the color scheme on it and then you have armors based on all of the planets in the solar system which becomes a really beautiful thing when you get to the flashback and you realize sort of where that comes from in his relationship with Eve. It's one of the best pieces of characterization there. So he has armors for Earth and Mars and Venus and all of them. And then they have these very fun names. So Earth is the third planet. So it's the Earth 3 Gundam. And yeah. Mars is the Mars 4 Gundam. And then there's the Mercury 1 Gundam for the Mercury 1. And they all sort of have different purposes and we see them over the course of the show. And they all are really cool designs, I think. And they all like have these very like clear functions in the action that mean that you're not just seeing a cool mobile suit design but it's functioning in a very interesting way and i just think it's it's one of the most fun parts of this show it is such a cool piece of characterization for hiroto in showing what a talented builder and a creative builder he is and that he's always coming up with kind of these problem solving solutions through this it kind of we'll talk about this later the one episode of the show that i don't really love is the one where they do the it's called build divers it's where they do the lotus challenge and uh -huh, it's the one where yeah. they bring in all the old characters and part of that episode falls flat because it's bringing back all these old characters i don't care about the part of it that really falls flat is the idea that hiroto would have trouble fighting literally any other character in this universe yes. because he is manifestly obviously the most talented pilot and builder we have seen maybe in any of the gundam build shows certainly in the divers universe yeah, I agree that it was that that is easily the weakest episode of the show, and it was something that I was disappointed that I was hoping that the twist of that episode would be that our build divers would just run rampant over like the entire assembled forces of everyone else <laughs> because they have like actually fought for real, right? Like it's not a game like they've fought with like their lives actually at stake, um, and so I I was really hoping that that would be the turn. Um, and it's it is not it's you know it's disappointing i mean if you're someone who somehow liked the original build divers i imagine that that show is fun for you um but if you are sane it's more just like oh god damn it <laughs> it felt it's like it's a very obligatory feeling episode and how it comes across um yeah and, and part of that problem is that i think you do see how much more capable hidoto is in tactics which is more what gundam is based on rather than like you know you've all obviously got g gundam um, and then you've got Build Fighters Try. But at its core, action in Gundam is very tactic focused. It's not a, you know, it's not a super robot show. It's a real robot show. So Gundam action at its best is about like interesting problems and like interesting solutions to those problems that involve bigger I like tactics ideas and creative uses of the like various functions of the Gundams and the machines involved and of like the military tactics that go into those scenarios with the ships and all that kind of stuff. And it's that's like i think like the core of when gundam action is really good um and i think the original build fighters is very good at translating a lot of that into sports anime because sports anime good sports anime also has a lot of that kind of feel to it um and it's less of the kind of martial arts stuff uh and then yeah i think like build fighters try loses that a lot build divers like is like is the martial artsy kind of stuff but just executed so poorly with a couple of like mild exceptions like the mid-season fight um that was pretty decent in that show um and so coming back to re-rise and finally getting okay this is tactics focused it's about the larger strategy that is involved in the fight and not just about like 
someone being more emotionally invested in the fight and being able to shoot out like a giant super move or whatever um, is just not the foundation of what the combat is in Re-Rise. And so you, when you go to them fighting the characters from the previous show, it feels like they should all just stumble blindly into some obvious trap that Hidoto has constructed and he should win in about two seconds. And when that doesn't happen, it's a little it breaks my suspension of disbelief. But I agree about tactics because that is the other really cool thing about the whole concept of the core Gundam is that he can only bring two of these armors in with him mm -hmm. in any time, like a max of two, because he can have one set on the core Gundam and one on his, you know, uh, the plane kit part of it, right? And so yeah. you have these, I love all the transformations, you know, Earth to Mars, Mars to Venus, all of that kind of stuff is very fun. But it also means that Hiroto is constantly planning and analyzing and a lot of like the basic sort of like most of the battles and like missions on the show take place over multiple episodes because what they do is they kind of like do a dry run or they get the lay of the land then maybe they go do a practice run in gbn and then they come back in and do the full mission and in the middle of that hiroto is considering which one of the armors he's going to use sometimes he's building new things and i think all of that is just a really fun sort of engine for the show to move on you know, if you're just talking about, like, how much does, like, the central Gundam of the show help drive the engine of the plot, this is one of the best in, in the whole history of the franchise. Because that the core Gundam idea animates so much of what makes the, like, the action and the tactics side of this show so cool. Yeah. I also really love that they came up with a cool backstory for, like, why he, like, the, why the basic one is this little kind of, like, tiny Gundam. And it's that whole cool fight he has yes. where the other dude is using a perfect grade mobile suit. And he's got this little tiny, like, pre-made um, little thing or whatever um, that's, like, this little, little tiny Gundam. Uh, it looks like something you would get in, like, a McDonald's Happy Meal. Yes. And it's so weak that when he fires the big blast at the end of that fight, it rips off its arms which is one of my favorite finishing moves I've ever seen in Gundam, because I don't think I've ever seen that where a Gundam fires, its arms get ripped off and it's falling to the ground, but it's already won because it fired yeah. the finishing move. That's a really cool fight. Yeah, and I just love that, like, Hirato comes out of that and he has this line I really like where he just says, like, I want to, like, explore all the possibilities of a smaller Gunpla. Um, and he's, like, so intrigued by that idea that it, like, ignites this kind of creative spirit. Um, and that's yeah. one of the things that this show hits on is it's got the build part is back right after yes. being totally absent in build divers being de-emphasized in build fighters try we're finally back to where it's like it's a really central part that's like the main character's biggest thing the thing that he's best at is building the fucking things and coming up with cool ideas and being a really creative builder um and that's one of the things that's satisfying is seeing someone creative approach those problems and, and getting to see that whole arc once you get the flashback of like the gem or like the germ from which the whole core Gundam concept grew from. Well, that's another reason why the core Gundam is such a cool and important idea to this show is that part of the problem in build divers is that, okay, it's about building nominally, but when you scan the gun plot, then nothing gets destroyed. There's no yeah. like intrinsic reason that, you know, in build fighters and build fighters try, the characters do their fights on the system and then the, the, the there'll be damage. And so they that's usually why Say Yori does something cool with his gun because it's been damaged and then he rebuilds it, right? And mm -hmm. you get a little bit of that in try as well. Well, there's no need to do that in build divers, so they just kind of ignore it. But in Re-Rise, I think the way they thread that needle is through stuff like the core Gundam of, okay, I don't need to rebuild this because it got broken. I need to rebuild this to make it better, to apply a different armor, to apply a different idea. Kazumi rebuilds his entire suit to go with his tank idea. And so the building becomes very important 
as a manifest of what they're learning in the game. And that feels like the perfect way to marry these two. In a way, I honestly, after seeing Build Divers, I would have maybe kind of said, I don't know if it's possible to make a good show out of this idea. And I think this one shows that with enough creativity, the Build Fighters idea and the, the you know, more Isekai thing actually can go together really beautifully and in a very fun way. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a really smart concept, very well executed. Another yeah. thing I really love about the mobile suits in this show is that we finally have one of these built shows using Turn A Gundam mobile suits. Because yes. that was the thing that just like, and I kind of get it because, you know, they're they're a fairly different design aesthetic. So I sort of get why they've, they've avoided it in the other built shows. Um, but as soon as I saw that one of our main characters is piloting a fucking Wadham, I was like, yes, yep. this is a build show that <laughs> has captured my heart immediately. Um, because the Wadham from Turn A Gundam is like one of my favorite weird, like sort of like grunt mobile suits. Um, if we did a list of just like these kind of grunt enemy mobile suits, the Wadham would definitely be in my top 10 of that ranking. Um, it's so cool. And having May pilot a, a, a Wadham for the whole thing. And then like, obviously she it transforms into her like cool kick-ass giant robot form um but that immediately captured my heart and then you do get other turn a gundam stuff popping up in places like they have the like crazy turn x modified one at the end of the show and stuff like that um the mobile suits turn a gundam fucking kick-ass they should have been yes. in more of these build shows if they do more build shows they should use the turn a gundam uh era mobile suits more uh and i love the Wadham. thank you may that, that is what I want to say about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Love having the Wadham here. It's really cool. There's a general, like, I love the color work in this show. There's a lot of really good stuff in the animation with just the color design on characters and on mobile suits and on the environment. I talked about Hiroto's hair and how much I like the coloring they mm -hmm. use there. I think the same with Mei and I think her hair and the green on her costume and then how that plays with the Wadham and all of that stuff. There's a bunch of good stuff there. Uh, Cosme's mobile suits, the Gundam Justice Knight and then the Aegis Knight, both of those I think are fantastic, particularly when he rebuilds it as the Aegis Knight and like really makes it his is such a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just a good use of like being able to mash different Gundam style aesthetics together. So taking this like, you know, what I feel like I've only seen those in some of like the Gundam video games and stuff. Um, because they're obviously they're taken from either like weird manga or like we're only made as like Gunpla exclusive things of these like sort of fantasy style Gundams. Um that obviously we've had in bits and pieces in other of the build shows, but it's fun to have one of the main characters have this full fantasy style Gundam like night thing going on. Yeah, and I also very much like the version of the bear guy he builds, the Justa guy yes. uh, that they use at the festival. That's adorable and very funny. Love all of that. Um, and then Parv is the Valkalander, which he names Morgiana. I just love that one. It's such a cool idea. In general, this is actually, I will give Build Divers the first show this, and I will, it continues in Rerise. I like what they do with the SD Gundams. Mm -hmm. the, the best mobile suit in Gundam Build Divers is the SD Gundam that... Um, What's her IMA. name? IMA. I realized, Sean, watching this show, I remembered none of the main characters' names from the first show except Riku. So when they did the episode where they all came back, I'm like, I don't know anyone's name at all. Anyway, but yeah, IMA's IMA mobile is suit. easy to remember because that's the name of the ninja character in, like, the Dead or Alive and Ninja Gaiden franchises. <laughs> so I always just think of, like, oh, yeah, yes. it's the ninja lady from Ninja Gaiden. But she has the, the ninja SD Gundam. And I've actually bought the real one of that, the kit, and I've built that. And it's one of the coolest, like, um, Gunpla builds I've done. It's an SD kit, 
but it's incredibly intricate. It's got all the SDs have lots of stickers, but this one like has very intricate stickers. And then the build is really cool because you can, there's lots of different modes of the basic, because she's got the SD Gundam and then the bird sort of plane that goes with it. But then you can also, just like in the show, take it all apart and make a full-sized Gundam out of it. Um, it's one of the coolest kits I've ever seen, and I would highly recommend it if you can get your hands on it, because it's really neat. And then the big SD Gundam for this show is the Morgiana, um, his dragon, that also kind of can come apart and be a normal-sized SD Gundam. And I love the level of creativity on that. I love how sort of, like, personified the Morgiana is, in that it's just this very adorable dragon that Parr has this relationship with. I think all of it is super neat. Yeah, and I really like the, how it's integrated into the story that, you know, all the different people from Eldora all call it, like, the Holy Beast, the Seiju. Yes. Um, and it's like, oh, it's the Holy Beast. And I love that, like, they're all, like, so into Par, and, like, Par is their favorite because he's got a, a, a fuzzy tail and he's got a big, cool, holy dragon monster that he yes. rides around in. Um, and then the twist that there is, like, actually a Holy Beast and that that is, like, a major character in the second half of the show is also fantastic. Um but yes, the the Valkalander is one of the the coolest mobile suits certainly in the show. Um, and it's it's one of the like yeah like I think try build divers and re rides like even for the, some of the rougher parts of those other shows. One thing that they do extremely well is using the SD Gundams because also Fumina's SD Gundam from uh, Try it's also really good. Not as good and as I, I think these two, but yeah. that one is also a very good design. Right, and I have I have that one too. Those are the two SD Gundams I have, and at some point I want to buy the Valkalander and and build that one. I mean, the list of mechanical designers is fucking hilarious on this show, oh. and divers. It's it's true on Build Divers as well. But they both, I think, Build Divers had nine credited mechanical designers, and Rerise has eight. And I really love like because of the font they use in the first Rerise theme song, it fills most of the screen, uh -huh. showing all eight mechanical designers. One of whom is Kunio Okawara, still still doing his thing, which is yeah. awesome. Um, and yeah, obviously a lot of creativity goes into that, but it just feels like I think because of narrative reasons, the assembled talent of the mechanical designers were able to go quite a bit further than they ever got to on the first show. Yes. I also really love with the Valkalander that it's got its own weird transam called the Gundranzam. Yes. Um, that is like a ridiculous <laughs> phrase that I'm not entirely sure what it means, like why, where that comes from, but I love... I love Trans Am, so I'm happy when it shows up uh, and and having a weird special... Like, if that feels like something that the original Build Fighters would have come up with. is like, oh, let's have, like, a weird different Trans Am yeah. that's, like, a special SD version of it or whatever. Definitely the general... I mean, I think this show clearly takes a lot from the original Build Fighters. Yeah. Um, obviously, the, the structure of the last two episodes is identical to the structure of Build Fighters. And, like, for... And to good effect, it does it very well. Um but I think just in general, the whole focus on building and building as a way to creatively solve solve problems. Like, for instance, when they have the, the dragon, Quadron, that they meet, who's like the actual sort of sacred beast who was created by the ancients, and he's got the broken wing, and Par has the idea of building, in, of bringing in Gunpla materials and building him a new wing. I love that. That's such a yeah. cool, creative idea to, like, fix things. And then he has a big, cool plastic wing. It's just awesome. Yeah. The Quadorn also is like, you know, we've been saying there's some like Digimon elements. Quadorn is like literally a Digimon. Yes. Like he literally just looks like a Digimon. Uh, and that's not a criticism. That is a huge compliment because I fucking love Digimon. And that like, it looks yeah. like something I would have stumbled on in Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth and been like, where the fuck did this Digimon come from? Holy shit. Um, Quadorn yeah. is an awesome character. I love that he is like at the beginning, very much the like sort of 
you know ancient dragon that you expect but then he has he never like makes jokes but he is a looser character who's mm -hmm. sort of more into playing around with the crazy ideas they have than you realize at first and he's like definitely one of the highlights i think of the second half of the show yeah it's just like the show is just so chock full of good characters like everyone who shows up i yeah. think uh, like shines a lot and speaking of good mobile suits, we also just have to give a shout out in the penultimate episode, the way they defeat the big cannon and a and all mm -hmm. of that is they do the show just becomes a super Sentai show for five minutes yep. where all of their suits come apart and then they recombine into the build divers re-rising Gundam using pieces from all of their four main suits and they do a big crate. I mean, literally it even does the things super Sentai shows do where when they're in there, it does the like cross, you know, uh, the like different boxes on screen showing yes. all four of them yelling like the phrase together. It is joyous and wonderful and just another sort of like genre box. This show checks off in this sort of like weird mix of genres it's playing with. I fucking love it. Yeah, no, it's a great, perfect ending. Again, like, it's like the other, like, perfect use of the core Gundam concept is, you know, to represent that all of our main characters have come together fully as, like, a team and, like, a sort of, like, found family, almost sort of thing that they've built together. They now, like, fuse together in their suits in, in Save the Day. Yeah, perfect. Like, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. And they're doing it, but you know what? Let's do it just right now. Let's just break in to talk about the theme songs because they're really good. But there's a song, the second opening, Hatana, is yes. so fucking great. And you know it's great because they use it twice in a row as an insert song. Not in a row. I guess there's a, it's the episode where they they save Shido, the, the, the player who is like stuck in the game. They mm -hmm. save him. They play it there. And then for the ending, when they do their Super Sentai moment, it's playing Hatana. Uh, and it is the sickest thing ever. Yeah, Hatena, also by one of the greatest band names of all time, Penguin Research, which, yes. <laughs> you know, one of the only returning characters that I actually thought they did a very good job on, just because I think they wrote her funny and the actress did a good job, is Momo, the, like, soccer girl from the first show, that she has a couple yes. of really funny moments, one of them being, because she's in a weird, like, penguin-themed capsule, um, that's like what she had in the last show and she just full on shouts like penguin research and shoots a beam and i was like i can't believe that's like what a insane joke they threw this show <laughs> but because it's momo i kind of buy it but yes hatina is an absolute banger i've actually had hatina on my like anime song playlist since the show came out but i didn't realize it was from the show like it was something that just like popped up in like my recommends and i listened to it and it's and I thought, like, I'm, have I heard this from something? I don't know. It's really good. And I threw it on that playlist having no idea it was... I thought maybe it was, like, an opening from, like, Boruto or something. Um, and then it was like, no, it's the re-rise opening. So when I got to the second core, I'm like, oh, my God, that's what this song is from. Holy shit. Um, Hathena kicks all kinds of ass. One thing I like about its use here is particularly for, like, the build sort of side franchise. It's like a really dark song. All the other Build Diver openings are all, like, the most shonen stuff in the world. Like, usually in a very good way, right? That it's all, like, the songs are about friendship and coming together. You know, like, you know, like, Nibu no Ichi, the first opener to Build Field Fighters, has a line in its opening that's, like, let's weave together the colors of all of our dreams and, like, cross the rainbow bridge across the sky that we can make with it, basically. Uh, it's the most flowery friendship will save the day kind of stuff. And Hatina, which the title of that song means question mark, is this very like aggressive dark song that's like about a the character like like clearly for the show Hirato like faced with like these feelings of shame and guilt 
and sort of like assaulting himself in his mind and like questioning himself of like you know why have the the opening hook like why have i cried like wh why have i thrown this all away like i have to doubt it all in order to keep on being myself is what that opening line is that then comes back in the chorus and there's a line in the chorus that i love that is very dark that's like the character saying like how have i lived up till this moment and how will i keep on living from now um it's super dark and it works so well for the show and it's it's so much more kind of like flavorful than like the first opening for re-rise which is a song re-rise which is a good song by spirit speaker yeah. i like it but it it's fine whereas like hotton is just like it like comes and it just kicks your ass immediately the song goes in so hard and is so much more kind of like specific and purposeful for this show um in a way that like really separates it from the rest of the build songs in a way i really love yeah and i don't want to sell re-rise short because i think it's a really good song it's not it's not rebuilding the mold it's you know it's not doing anything you haven't heard before but i think it's a very solid version of that sort of thing i never skipped it really liked it when it it plays over the end credits for the final episode and i think it's very effective there you know hot it would have been um, very inappropriate in the context yes. of here yes. we've all won and we're supposed to be happy now let's do the song about like emo boy being like how how can i possibly keep on living with all my feelings yes. of shame and regret so yeah, I don't want to sell Rewrite short. It's a good song too, and I I love uh, this is definitely one where I like all four of the themes, and I like listening to the playlist. Yes. But Hatana is just the thing about it. When I've you know I, I mentioned earlier that the, you know Rewrite one of the things that's unique is that while it's one of the build shows, it has a lot more of like general AU Gundam in it, and you mm -hmm. definitely could see Hatana as the theme for Iron Blooded Orphans or yes. Double O. Um, or any of those sort of big AU shows that are darker, and it really helps sell that, like, the stakes in the second half of Build Divers are very real, and they're very big, and I think that shift is, like, very smart. I think it's totally right for this show to have an opening like Re-Rise to start, and then to shift to Hatana is just a very canny use of the theme song, you know? Yeah. Um, and then the show also has two really great ending themes. I love both of them a lot. Uh, particularly, my favorite is the first one, Magic Time. Um, Can I talk about it for a second? Magic yeah, Time, yeah. I fucking love. It's one of my favorite Gundam endings. I think that, one, the ending animation for it is great because it's this little story about Hinata and her friendship with Hirato and some of her memories around Gundam base with the two of them. And that's really cute. It is a better piece of storytelling than anything in Build Divers, just purely visually. Um, but the song, man, it is... Just, it slaps so hard when it shifts into it's magic time Kimi no Kage. oh my god i just every single time i want to dance to that song i've listened to it many times it's fantastic yeah it's it's basically and, and, and uh, this is like very much a compliment it's basically like what if the spice girls from the 90s made a gundam ending theme like that's just what it is <laughs> like it's not a 90s song like it's yeah. a new song but it feels so much like a song from the 90s and very intentionally like if you see the album art with it it is styled like it is a the album art for a girl pop band from the 90s like a spice girls um yeah. and yeah it it just it's one of those where it captures a very unique energy because of that that puts it like it reminds me of something it's not exactly like this but kind of like human touch with after gundam x like it's just hitting yeah. a different genre than you get not only for gundam but like anime songs in general uh it's so yeah magic time is great i also really love twinkle um the the ending to the second ending to the show also by spirit of Spica, who they did one of the songs for the first build but divers they did re-rise for the show and they did the second uh ending theme so they're we've got a lot of spirit Spica. they're a good band um and twinkle 
there's something that I, I like the song, but I also really love the animation. The animation that plays over it isn't like as narrative as the Magic Time one, but there's something about the image of Hiroto like sprinting through these like the like emptied out runners from a gunpla set like coming yes. towards him like it's like the ruins of an ancient civilization is such a great visual that I was like I couldn't believe that we hadn't had that like it's such a good idea for a build show um that like for the fourth one they finally hit on this like oh it, like it feels like someone on the staff was like actually been making a gunpla and looked at all the leftover runners and looked at like the weird geometric design of them as like we can use that. Like these, these look fucking cool. And incorporating that into the ending, I thought was really cool. The only sad thing about that is that you almost never see that yes. ending because uh -huh. this does the iron blooded orphans thing where the end credits get preempted quite a bit for, mm -hmm. especially in the second half get preempted and you just, you have the song, but it's over like final moments of the episode. Um, but that is one of the things about the song twinkle is whenever it comes up, because this show does, you know, the ending always comes in before uh, the we cut to credits. And it's always, I think Twinkle has a really effective start for that. Um, and I really love how it plays over those ending scenes is often very evocative. Yeah, it's got a good tone to it that like can fit a lot of different scenarios that it's got, a, it's kind of wistful feeling, but it's also got a little bit of a rock quality to the way that the guitars come in. Um, yeah. yeah, like it's just a really well calibrated song for how they use it. Yeah, really, but yeah, great set of theme songs for this one. I was really impressed, like, mm -hmm. certainly for our, our last full Gundam show, Sean, I'm so sad. Um, but not only a good show, but a good set of theme songs for me to add to the playlist, and I'm very happy about that. Yes, My okay. now complete playlist. Should I should I check how many songs and how many hours that is really quick? Yeah, here? go ahead. Because I have a playlist that I've been building, and, and because I didn't want to spoil myself on songs before I heard them, I've been adding the songs as I've gone along. So this is a this is pretty much complete. Um, it's everything we've watched, certainly, and a little bit more. 168 songs, 12 hours and 23 minutes. This playlist is officially long enough, Sean, that I could listen to this and nothing but this driving from my house in Iowa to my house in Colorado, and I wouldn't run out of songs. Yes, I mean that's like twelve hours is like basically a waking day. <laughs> yes, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's like that would be like the thing you did for a day was just listen to that whole playlist. Yeah, like you know, I'm very happy that we got a bunch of good new songs here, but also it's like it just makes me dread even more. We're gonna have our anniversary episodes very soon, and we're gonna have yep. to do some rankings, and this it's going to be easily the most brutal ranking you've ever had to do. Um, is ranking a bunch of Gundam songs because it's very competitive, and there's so many good ones. Maybe we just have to rank all 168 from worst to best. Oh my god, that would Century that, Color number 168. Yeah, if if you if you wanted to do a new podcast series that lasted in another year, we could do we could do that. Yes, exactly. Oh my god, it would be so hard. But no. Um and I I don't actually know if I would put Century Color there. I'm joking because we have at least one listener who uh, likes to troll us about that. Troll There's us. There's probably lovely. a theme song to G Savior. I don't remember. There's something that played in that <laughs> over the credits of that show. You know, it's not in my playlist. <laughs> yeah, it probably yeah. you probably can't find it if it even exists. Yes. So okay, we did a little detour to talking about the theme songs. Still plenty to talk about with the main bulk of the show. I think there's two sort of like narrative turns I want to talk about. I want to highlight the middle of the show and what happens mm -hmm. there, and then a little bit about um, the flashback and what happens near the end. But that middle, you know, the basically mid-season finale, which is sort of a two-parter um, where they go up into space and they have the big fight, 
you you described it earlier, Sean, and I think you described it rightly. It is a real gut punch when the laser goes through. They mm-hmm. do this amazing thing visually where they have the characters represented. They come into like sketch form and then the sketch kind of like dissolves. It's a very like Hideaki Anno kind of move to suddenly uh-huh. do. Yeah. Um, you have down on the ground, they you have the floating island that gets targeted, Segri, and you have Jed like running and like trying to protect some of the other people and it just gets obliterated. Um, definitely one of the most, sh- definitely the most shocking moment in any of the build shows. We can say that. <laughs> Yes, yeah, there wasn't, like, a, like, surprise, like, car accident that murdered one of the characters or something in Build Fighters. You know, we don't have any <laughs> other, like, character deaths. And and one thing, you gotta give a lot of credit to Re-Rise, they fucking stick to it, you know? Yes. Like, Jed, Jed is dead, you know? It's, like, they pick that name well, because it's what happens to him. Jed's dead, and he's not coming back. Uh, and, and, I, and there, I was really nervous at a moment where they brought... There's like one of the generals or whatever survived and he was like wounded and they show him briefly. I was like, oh, and he escaped, managed to like survive and escape that I was worried. Oh, are they going to bring Jed and like show that like all of them secretly survived? And no, they're fucking got obliterated. That dude probably just wasn't in the city when it happened. Um, but yeah, like they, they commit to those deaths and, and like that whole sequence is incredible. Just the, all the action and the buildup and the suspense of it is amazing. But it's particularly afterwards um, where our characters are then confronted with this loss and and where it's like even before anyone has told them specifically that this is real, I think it like has sunk in for them that like you know their emotions are not lying to them like this is like they're feeling like real grief and tragedy at that moment, whether they've it's been confirmed to them that like these are sapient independent life forms or they're NPCs in a video game like that sense of real loss is so palpable yeah it's. I mean, just there's a general sense in that last episode of like, you you it, it's pulling the rug out from under you on multiple levels, yeah. in that you expect to have the big victory because they even set it up for like Hirato is in the position to end things, but the cannon just fires a little earlier, right? And so it fires, they definitively lose this battle, the whole resistance is wiped out, and then they are down planet side just realizing and it just the way that dawns because of course this is the moment you're waiting for for that entire first season that first core is when are they going to realize this is a real place and i love that it just it just dawns on them it's not someone comes in and tells them it's they just realize shit this can't be a video game this is too real um and that sense of loss is just so immense and then i think the way that it very much has the structure of like double o or iron blooded orphans where it's a season that ends yeah and like pushes you towards the next phase of the story where you know they decide that they're they're all freaked out and they don't know if they should come back into and try this because this is crazy this is dangerous they could fall into a coma like um like shido did or or die something worse right but then they all realize, you know, independently that, of course, they have to do this. And that first season ends on the note of them getting back together and heading back in. And it's extremely rousing. Yes. Yeah. Because it's a yeah, it's just a great sort of season finale of that moment where, you know, they everything is destroyed. They're in the camp. Um, and and like Cosme, I think, in particular, is the character that it hits the hardest for because, because he is the one who's been most treating it like it's just a video game, whatever. Um, and then they all like disappear in the middle of that and are sent back to their real worlds. Like that's, it's such a gut punch. It's such a huge moment. And then following up from that, having the end of that first season effectively be the first time that you see all the characters like together in their physical bodies in meeting in the quote unquote real world and, and sort of reasserting their commitment 
Um, it's just a perfect kind of like season structure, right? We have gone through that first season, meeting all these characters, diving into their individual insecurities, having them kind of come together as a team, experience a moment of like failure and loss and having to pick themselves back up from that failure as a tighter team than they were going into it. Um, it's just a like kind of perfect narrative structure for that first season. Yeah, definitely gave me a very similar feeling to Double O or, yes. or Iron-Blooded Orphans at the end of like, wow, they this is like structured so well and so tightly. This one is shorter, obviously, but like the way they do that is super impressive. Um, second season also, obviously very good. And then it builds up to that two-episode flashback where we learn about, in the first one, basically the relationship between Eve and Hiroto. And then the second episode basically redoing the events of the end of Build Divers from Hiroto's perspective. Um, one of the most like fascinating pieces of like fiction I've ever seen in how it re like metatextually reworks and criticizes the original show, culminating in such a startling image of Hiroto yeah. almost participating in the fucking lynch mob, deciding not to retching in the mobile suit like a violent image of him like vomiting in his mouth and then the Gundam he's in and you know metaphorically him falling to its knees and getting just splattered in mud you could not possibly be more brazen about what you felt about the end of build divers than how they visually represent that there right yes no and it's it's that whole flashback just feels like them saying if we had to, if like this team, if like if, if this specifically feels like this writer because it's the main creative person that changed. Like if I was involved in the first show, this is what I would have done with it. You know, that, that like Hiroto is, Hiroto's relationship with Eve feels like an actual like narrativized version of the kind of thing that Build Divers nominally was going for with Riku and Sarah, but just had no awareness of what to do. Um, yes. And it's like, and it's kind of funny that it's framed very similar to like, and we talked about this a little bit on that last podcast of like what it felt like, you know, that I thought of when watching that, that show is like, what would I do? Right. If I was presenting these pieces, like how would I try to salvage Riku? Like, how would you turn Riku into a good character? It's like, one of the things was with that first show that one of the weaknesses with him as a protagonist is that there's no good, like sort of reason why he's playing gbn and is involved in this stuff or like why was he not already playing gbn before the show started he doesn't have a sort of a moment of coming to this stuff he just wants to do it he just hasn't done it yet for no good reason it makes the character very limp in terms of his like motivation and everything and and like i think we talked about that one of the cool things to have done because this would be different than what they've done before is having him be someone who's already into it but has kind of like fallen out of love with it or has grown distant with the Gundam stuff. And that's basically what Hirojo's characterization is in that flashback. Someone who really liked Gundam build fighters style Gundam stuff has seen that the world is kind of moving on from it and is half-heartedly checking out GBN, but doesn't seem to be super invested in it yet. Um, and the way he becomes invested in it is through his relationship with the you know female lead of that show that never really existed eve and that love romantic interest and that love story is the, about both him falling in love with eve and about him rediscovering his love for like gundam and for this virtual world and all those things conflating and then in that version of the story it ends in tragedy right and then we get this sort of sequel to it um and that's it's such a better sketch for 
what Gundam build divers could have done and what the relationship between Riku and Sarah could have been like with most of the basic concepts remaining the same. Um, but just having the relationship between the male and female lead be a thing that like is thematically interesting and one that reflects something deeper about the rest of the story in the world. And so building the like sort of metaphor of their relationship and their relationship to the world in general is a strong storytelling choice that that show did not make. And so Rewrite sort of retroactively makes it for the original Gundam Build Divers, does it over the course of two episodes rather than a fucking 26 episode show. And then is like, and, and now we have established our appropriate backstory for a sequel to that show that never got made. It's amazing because Eve is basically just Sarah in like yes. her, it's the same voice. It's the same character design, all of that. And that's one of the ways it just feels so pointed. They didn't use a different character. The The writer is literally saying, like, let's do that story, that's Sarah, that character, and let's show you how you actually do it. And that's basically part one of this flashback. And then part two is about confronting the other side of it, which is that, okay, once you realize this is an actual, like, AI life form in this game, what are the implications of that? And I just was kind of overwhelmed with what moral and spiritual clarity that episode brings to what was such a morass in the original show. It is like very clear in the first half about what it means for Hiroto to go through this thing of, of helping Sarah erase herself, right? And then the second half of him sort of, you know, he's wandering, he's on the team with uh, Kyoya and his buddies and but he doesn't really seem to have a purpose anymore. And he's nominally there for that final battle, but he's very checked out. And then he has this moment where he could shoot Riku down and end all of it. And the thought of doing that makes him, you know, wretch in his mouth and all of this stuff and is disgusted. And like, he is laid low by that. And it is this, that is as much his tragedy as what happened with Eve. Right? Yeah. That he, it's like a twofold failure. One is his failure to find a way to save Eve. And then the other failure is that, like, he wasn't sort of, like, morally strong enough to, like... I mean, he, did, he didn't actually do the shot. But the fact that he even considered it is, to him, enough of a failure that, like, he couldn't really fulfill that promise. And instead, like, this other character, Riku, is the one who, like, saves Sarah and, like, uh, like saves the world of GBN, which is the thing that, that Eve really wanted. Um, and so I think that's, like, it's a powerful backstory that uses the narrative elements of the previous show very effectively and it also like does it in such a way that it feels like it finds a way to make the kind of like quote-unquote moral dilemma of gun and build divers be a similar version of it but one that actually has a lot more weight which is by giving eve agency in what she is doing right like even yes. those two episodes is so much more of a character than sarah was across the entirety of the 26 episodes of gundam build divers one because eve like is aware of who she is she's acting with intentionality like she's purposeful in what she's doing whereas like sarah is a character that's just and this is true of like basically everyone in gundam build divers because the show is just poorly written but she's just whipped around by the whims of the plot um with like no real concern for who she is what she wants and like i think a thing that like build divers re-rise makes a strong point on the something that like i just hadn't even considered with sarah's whole thing in the original build divers is like well if, like 
Eve making the choice to sacrifice herself for that world makes sense for her because it's the only world she knows. There's no such thing as the real world to her. That doesn't fucking exist because she's an AI lady. Like, this is the only thing she knows. So the idea of her, like, sacrificing herself is actually noble. And it's because you can see it and you're invested in that relationship and you can see things from her perspective because she's been actually properly characterized. You can see how her making the choice and her deciding, I want to give my life in order to, you know, the sort of messianic Jesus-like action of like save the rest of this and save, you know, the Eldivers, save this world that, that I love so much. Her making the active choice to do that because it's the only thing she's ever experienced, like is a good, interesting narrative moment rather than Sarah just sort of being confronted with it and her running away and not thinking about it her not talking about it her having just kept herself being an l diver a secret almost feel like semi obliviously for most of the original show like that show just didn't have any idea what it wanted to do with any of that stuff and there's such a clarity of vision with how they approach the equivalent story with eve here yeah i mean it literally takes the worst stuff maybe in all of gundam certainly in animation and it takes it and makes two of the best episodes of Rewrite. Yeah. Like they are really good. And the ending of that second one where you come back to the present day and and um, May basically allows Hirato the space to fully grieve this loss as a real loss. And then also build him back up and realize like, but you have lived the life she wanted. It's tear jerking. It's beautiful. It's stunning. I can't believe this came from the pieces of Gundam Build Divers, right? Yeah. It's amazing. One other thing it does, and I don't know if this is entirely intentional, but it works so perfectly that I think it, it is, is that it also, along the way, it, it cleans up one really weird plot hole or like inconsistency, whatever you want to call it, of the original show, which was that like in the buildup to Sarah being captured in that fight, it's all about like, oh, the world's breaking apart and the bugs are crazy and everything's going insane and the world's going to rip apart at any moment. And then as soon as Sarah is captured by the coalition, it, it's fine. And, and like, it's like bright when they have the big last battle sequence, which is like five episodes long, it's like bright sunny day. And we're just out here having a normal gun to fight. And the bug stuff doesn't factor into it at all until now that we've saved Sarah, all of a sudden the bugs are really important again. Um, and it's just like a really bad inconsistency in that show that like robs a lot of that ending stretch of episodes, a lot of the drama it might have had. If it had been clear that like the world was literally ripping itself apart while Riku is trying to save Sarah, whose very existence is the thing causing the world to rip apart, would have done something to, like, even out a little bit some of the stakes they're sort of trying to do for that story in that show. And in Re-Rise, I think it's like kind of clear that the only reason why Sarah was able to survive as long as she did is because Eve sacrificed herself. If she hadn't done that, the bugs would have ripped GBN apart long before that happened. And it feels like the timing lines up probably pretty closely to where the bugs sort of like magically seem to have disappeared from that original show out of nowhere. Again, I don't know if that was intentional, but that's kind of like how it read to me is like fixing up this weird little thing that felt odd about the way the, the last show worked. It's something I find really fascinating about this show's approach to, to the original show is that it is, it's like very overtly critical, I think, of build divers in a lot of ways that are very obvious. But it is also a very generous piece of storytelling. When I say it's like a 
yes and in improv, it's like a very holistic yes and. It's like, you had a terrible idea, improv partner, but I'm going to fucking run with it and make it good because I'm a good storyteller. And it really does that in ways that certainly does not redeem anything in the original Build Divers, but makes a genuinely good story out of those bones without pretending they weren't there, right? Yeah. It's sort of like... The it's like, it's like the polar opposite in both directions of what like Star Wars eight to nine does, you know? Uh-huh, yes. Where like eight is really good, and then nine decides none of that happened, and it's a piece of shit. This is like Bill Diver's piece of shit, but then Rerise says, "Okay, you were bad, but all of it happened. I'm gonna acknowledge all of it in this show, and I'm gonna make it stronger for it." And it's a really impressive, you know, narrative move. Yeah, it's something where it's like I kind of it's kind of one of the things I also wanted from Build Fighters Try that it never fully did. Remember, like like Try like teases Iori say like over and over and over again, never does anything with it. And it's one of the things that's very frustrating in the home stretch of that show is it feels like they're setting up a more sort of like complete fusion of the show with its predecessor. Um, and it's like funny that Rerise is able to do that with a show that really didn't deserve to have it done you yes. know it's like but it's like as you say it's something that's very generous about the way that re-rise approaches itself as a sequel is that it gives itself enough space from the original show that it's able to totally do its own story and is able to sort of you know and be sort of like softly critical in the implication and kind of the subtext of how it's handling things you can see in the comparison where it's critical of the original show but it's never like mean towards the original show or dismissive of it it's like just taking those things and, and moving with it yeah so we already talked about that i don't think either of us it's not a bad episode but we were not crazy about the episode called build divers where they do the the lotus challenge with the old characters it's fine there's some good action in it i just have no affection for all of those characters so as the big like sort of like crossover episode it doesn't do much for me um and then you have the final two of the series where you have the and it again takes the exact scenario basically from build fighters one where the penultimate episode is where the big final battle happens with the sort of nemesis in this case alice and the big cannon they beat it it's great and then the finale is an unexpected twist where alice comes to gbn and then there's a big battle with everybody in the world coming together um i really like i think it's a very good conclusion it's a lot of fun i think it is slightly dampened for me by the fact Mm -hmm. that it's a big team up with characters I mostly don't care about, but I don't think it loses sight of the re-rise cast in the midst of that. And that's why it it still works for me very well. Yeah. Like, I think if I could, like there's, there's a change I could make to that episode and uh, the, the other episode with all the old cast in it is just to like calibrate it heavier towards the re-rise side. There's, there's just like a little bit too much of cameos of old characters um and like i think some of that is totally fine and it's like you know whatever like you you want to it's useful to make the point that i think is smart for the show to make which is like having all the people who play gbn come in and help out and like have hiroto's and the other characters main characters affection for gbn and this virtual world that they've built and the memories they've shared in there having that be rewarded by having the other participants in that world come in and help them is a really great idea for the ending and you have a previous show that has a bunch of characters from that world to use so it's like conceptually it all works well um and i think like it generally works for the show because the core concept is really good but because the actual characters you're using are so hollow it's like I think they could have like dialed it a little bit away from having longer scenes with some of those characters or longer sequences with them and, and edged it more towards keeping the focus predominantly on the re-rise stuff. Um, 
is probably what I would have done to try to fix that that a little bit because I think it's the only part of this show that feels slightly messy is it it focuses just a bit too much on those characters the old characters in the two episodes they feature in yeah now some of what they do with the old characters is fun you mentioned Momo that they bring back they make funny stuff with her right Uh, I also really like there is again I do not remember anyone's names uh, but the the sort of guy on the original crew who was like an older builder, um, Koichi. And a, Koichi of Koichi, and you have the friend who was Evil Haro, and they are now piloting a Gundam together. And Evil Haro is still that is still his like his like user yeah. in the game is Evil Purple Haro, and he takes over and just starts like ripping other suits to shreds very violently. That is a fun, well animated, funny piece of action. I like that. Um. I was not a huge fan of the implication that Rommel is Captain Zeon. I don't know I mean, why that's it, supposed it's to... It's obvious just from because it's the same voice actor. that uh, There's yeah. a moment where, I for a while, I thought that maybe that was just like they had done the casting. Because I just had expected that to be a thing they brought in earlier because it's the same guy. Um, but yes, like it, right. it... Yeah, like it was a thing I guess I saw coming. I was almost surprised that they held off on it uh, as long as they did. Because it made me wonder if, like, it was just a pure coincidence that they cast the same dude. Okay, but, like, if you take the voice out of it, I just don't really, like... One, I don't have enough residual affection for that character, the fucking Nazi weasel, to, like, for that to do anything for me. And I also just think, of the available characters in Build Divers, I don't know if that even, like, quite makes sense. It's just, it's something that I think they think is more fun than I actually got out of it. Although, when Captain Zeon comes in and has his big moment with Kazumi, I did find that very enjoyable. Yeah, I would have preferred if Captain Zeon was just an original character and was not yes. a Nazi re- weasel from the first show. But yeah, uh, but that's fine. And then you know you do get some great action in there. It's, you were mentioning this earlier that the moment where you have the guy from the Gundam base shop bring in all of Hiroto's different parts into GBN, and he just starts bringing you know grafting on all these different pieces of the different planet armors, and that action sequence is fucking killer. Yeah. I also say I do really like the concept of uh, Kujo Kyoya's suit, that it's like the Gundam Age arcade game in Japan where you use the cards. Oh, yes, and, like, yes. Swipes the cards. That's a thing that like feels like another thing to kind of like subtweeting the original show of like, hey, we came up with a cool idea for a mobile suit that like there's no space in this show to have done much with. But man, it would have been way cooler if that was what his mobile suit was in the last show <laughs> because that's there's like a cool like gimmick or concept around it um like it was almost kind of sad that they burned that on this like one little sequence here because it's a good enough concept to be a more like fully featured thing in one of these shows oh it's phenomenal and that that is another suit i have that is the that is the tri-age magnum uh and that is a build i did i that's a that's one of the best hg kits i have it's super cool i love the color scheme on that it's a really cool you know sort of fusion of the different sort of gundam age suits uh, it also has the big laser beam that, if, well, one, he has the fucking laser cape, which is super yep. cool, but you can take that laser cape on the gunpla and turn it into the laser beam sword, which is the tallest, like, biggest piece of armament I have on any gunpla. It is literally bigger than the mobile suit. It's fucking hilarious. Is it the kind of thing where you need, like, a stand for it to even stand up because of how, like, do. it changes, like, the, the weight on the whole thing? Well, it comes with a stand. It's the only HG oh. kit I've had that actually comes with a stand for that reason, kind of, because the whole mm-hmm. suit is big and has a lot of crazy proportions. Um, and so, yes, I have it right now. The way I have it posed is on the stand with the sword up. And, like, literally, I've tried to take pictures of it, and it's hard to get it all in frame because the sword <laughs> is so big. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. that's one of the nice things about the, these build shows. Like, even when they're bad, like, the mobile suits are good, you know? So, it's like, for the last yes. show... I mean, obviously, this this specific one is from Re-Rise. Um, but even a lot of the mobile suits from the last show were still fun. And obviously sold yeah. sold their kits effectively, which is what Bandai needs, so... What do you think about all the stuff with A-List, the, the AI, in the second half of the show? I, I guess like my it. view... Yeah, I like it. I think it feels a little underbaked. I think the idea in the final couple episodes that they are going to try to save Alus instead of just destroy him is perfect. That feels like exactly the lesson these characters would have learned. Some of it just feels slightly underbaked to me a little bit near the end. I, I can kind of see that. I didn't have a, a big problem with it. I think like the concept of the character just works well as the, like, you know, I mean, it's sort of a standard setup, but he's you know, completely cut himself off. He's completely isolated, even though he's a digital existence. He's sort of like removed himself from everything else. Um, and so them trying to bring him into, right? He he is like removed from the world that it is that he's trying to save. So he's like a, a, a evil reflection of someone like Eve, who is an, a virtual existence, who also is trying to protect the world, but it's a member of the world that she's trying to save, not trying to right. protect it from a great distance. Um, and so I think, that all that stuff conceptually works well. But I think I agree that, like, they probably could have done a bit more to fully flesh out that character. It helps a lot that he's voiced by Ishida Akira. So, you know, Othrin Sala uh, from the Gundam Seed series and stuff, obviously in a lot of stuff. Um, and, and so, like, that vocal performance is definitely, like, the feels like it's the weightiest because it's, like, the most prestigious actor they have in the show. Um, and, they, and that, I think, carries that character uh, quite a ways. And I think that's part of why, because the voice, as you say, has a lot of weight behind it. Sometimes I wanted some of the like conversations to go a little further or something. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's still, I do like the conceptual direction of it an awful lot. Um, the yeah, and you have your final montage to the song "Rerise." It's very good. We do get our little explanation, uh, Sean, that you mentioned earlier, where you have Miss. I like that Miss Tori, the bird, is an actual woman named Tori-san. That's very funny. Uh -huh. I liked that. And, you and have she's the like a Hollywood starlet from like the 1950s yes. or something. It's like such it's a weird. ridiculous character design. Like I but thought have... she would be like super old or something was the impression I got. And then it's like, right. why is she looks like she's like 25 or something. It's like, was she, did she build GBN when she was a child? Like what the fuck? Maybe, maybe she's a child genius and aliens hacked the system. I do love just how fucking crazy the world building gets because uh -huh. of all the alien stuff. It's because they imply this at the midpoint of the show that parts of GBN are based on this ancient alien technology. Uh, and when you get the full like confirmation of that at the end, I think that's, I think it's kind of awesome because that very much is in keeping with like Gundam build fighters is a down to earth sports anime, but there's also a boy from another dimension where he's a prince, right? Like yes. crazy world building is part of this side franchise's DNA. Yeah, and, and I think it's like it's a legitimately interesting sci-fi idea that, you know, the, the idea of advanced alien races becoming like beings of data or consciousness is a classic sci-fi concept. I mean, you know, it's it's that's like five episodes of the original Star Trek show. You know, it's like yes. all over the place. Um, and it's, you know, it's in many ways a part of like Gundam, you know, the new type stuff is similar to that in some ways. Some of the innovator stuff from Devil of Gundam is similar to that. It's not exactly that thing. Um, and so doing that, and but the idea of, oh, some ancient alien, like, like aliens visited us, but not in physical form, in digital form. And so the only way they've manifested was in our advanced VR MMO shit. Like, that's a cool idea. Like, is like a legitimately interesting take on this genre of like how you get some of the weird AI stuff and some of the more exotic elements of the world building to happen is, is aliens did it. That always works. 
Yes. We didn't mention it, but the other moment I love at the midpoint of the season is the whole idea that what happens with the space laser on Eldora causes a massive like electronics outage on mm-hmm. Earth. And it was and because of the time difference, you also realize what's happening on that planet is hundreds of years in the past because of light traveling to Earth. I think all of that is super cool. I yeah. really like that little narrative turn. Yeah, all, all that stuff is really good. It's just, yeah, the whole world building, the sense of itself is very fun in the show. It has, like, yeah. fun with its setting. I also like, this is the first Gundam show that ever ends this way. It has a funny little post-credits scene where you have two of the dog guys driving around the desert and they find one of the one-eyes that now Alice is gone and has no purpose and they invite it to get in and they put a sombrero on it and they drive away. I found that very funny. Yeah, I, th- I think, like, the whole epilogue of this show is fantastic. Like, all the different stages of it. Of, like, that being the last moment of, like, companionship between these two races that have been at war. Like, I like that you get a little bit of a resolution for the one-eyes. Because they always did seem like there's something more to them than, than just right. they're, like, evil robots. <laughs> they seemed like, you know, and so I like that they, they bring that in. Because I kind of thought their their design is kind of, like, adorable. on um, These weird little, like, robot octopus dudes. Um, but all the stuff of like uh, all the friends getting together, bringing Hinata into the virtual world, getting all the like these Gundam build divers, the Gundam build divers that matter together. Um, it's just like a nice full ending that really breathes, you know. Um, and I I always appreciate that because it's a risk with anime that like you know there's a lot of shows that just like hit the ending and just stop. Um, and it's nice to really sit with these characters for a while. Um, and see a little bit of like what is the world after we have one like what does that look like what do these relationships look like um it's always very satisfying one thing i also love that we didn't mention in the final two episodes is the way they parallel hiroto and hinata where hiroto is going Uh off to the final mission in in eldera and hinata has the bow festival the the ceremony where she's gonna you know shoot the bow um and I think that's just a really cool th- th- idea. I think the way it's intercut is great. Obviously, when they do the big final fight with Hatana playing, they have you know her firing the arrow as they're firing the beam. It's just you know it's a really good way. And I think it's it's a theme that is I think present in this show throughout. Is it is sort of interrogating, as we've said before, a lot of the ideas of like you know what is real, what is fake, and what makes something meaningful. And it's kind of drawing this comparison between like you know Hirato is off saving a literal world. Hinata is firing a bow at this little ceremony, but there's something to both of them that is very important and satisfying about that and that they take strength in each other from. Um, And I think it's a very good thematic statement of something that is running through this whole show because this is a show, unlike the first one, with actual ideas. Yeah, well, because it's a thing where the main thematic concern of Re-Rise is the same main thematic concern of the original show, which is about, is, is asserting that the experiences and the things that we have in our virtual and digital lives are as meaningful and important to us as people as the experiences and relationships and things we have in the quote-unquote real world or the physical world. Like, that's the basic idea behind both shows. But Build Divers, like, fucks around for most of the episodes. It doesn't do anything with these those ideas. And then it just, like, waits until it has some sort of, like, superficially dramatic sequence with, like, the... Um, decal shit and all of that and then they just have characters shout that idea at each other but you haven't explored it meaningfully in a narrative sense where it's like re-rise is so thoughtful and diligent at how it builds that up and it's like mostly through or like predominantly like the strongest lenses through hirito's character development which i find like is really 
powerful where you know because we've kind of touched on obviously the other characters and and where they how they relate to real world experiences of being you know being able to express yourself or explore different aspects of yourself in this virtual world and like hiroto's story is about someone who had a really meaningful relationship with someone through a digital medium and experienced a loss and lost that relationship and is grieving over it but because it happened virtually doesn't know how to deal with that grief right so it's like he he's sort of stopped at that moment and because he didn't ever meet eve physically and he doesn't have like sort of like the psychological like assurance of the groundedness of a physical meeting with this person and she's just gone he's wandering this virtual world knowing that he can't find her but still thinking he might find her out there somewhere because it's this because it's virtual because it feels like it's fake or it's constructed and, and like anything could happen there um and then he also really struggles in like relating that feeling of grief he has to the people in his life like hinata he can't express it he can't explain it to anyone he hides it from everybody um and so that's like i think a really powerful i think very like relatable experience i think most people particularly young people these days have one or two things in their lives that they can equate that with of, of having developed some sort of relationship either like a direct relationship or even like parasocial relationships can have this as well um where it's more just you consuming very personal content from someone online and then losing that in some way there's like a real feeling of loss and grief when those connections are severed but because we in our world like we framework these things as very different and because it's digital it's not as important or not as significant as if it was a physical thing it becomes hard to sort of like process that grief because you're meant to be able to downplay it you're meant to be able to dismiss it because it's not something that's physical and it's not something that's actually real in the terms that society generally defines it and so that character arc i think is really powerful and marking that throughout hiroto's journey where he takes the longest of any of the characters to fully come terms with like his vulnerabilities and the things that he's trying to overcome in his story arc that's the work that a show needs to do to be able to make that point and make it then convincing when you have the intercutting in the finale of Hinata in the real world doing a thing that is like trivial in the broad perspective of things because she's just performing like an annual ceremony doing this thing where she fires an arrow into this this target and so it's just a part of like a tradition but it's not like nobody's lives are staked on it there's nothing like really important in the world that's going to change for other people because of this but her but to her it's really significant because it's her experiences it's her self-perception it's who she is and how she's trying to express herself what she wants to achieve in the world and that subjective experience makes it really powerful and really meaningful to someone in the same way that our subjective experiences of virtual worlds make those experiences real and so they they flip it right the real world thing that that hinata is doing is one that is superficial and in normal senses would not be important but is important to her so it is important in in the only way we care about because we care about the characters and then all of our main characters are off in the virtual world which is supposed to be the one that's totally disposable but they're doing the stuff that like is world changing and is like in a very like fundamental way something that's saving people's lives and doing things that we can all agree in a very objective sense is like important and valuable and so the way that it takes those ideas it mushes it all together and then it like flips all of it on its head to really thoroughly make its statement like it it is a thing that 
in comparison with how Gundam Build Divers 1 deals with its themes, Gundam Build Divers 1 is like a five-year-old's crayon drawing that you put up on a fridge and, you know, fucking re-rises like the fucking Sistine Chapel or some shit. It's just like the, the, <laughs> the gulf between how it goes about exploring its themes through narrative, like storytelling, character arcs, set, setting, all that stuff. It's just the biggest gulf I have seen in two like shows in the same series, I think literally ever. I couldn't say it better myself, and I think that is actually a good place to start to bring this to a close, because you're absolutely right. That says everything you need to know about the difference between these two shows and why Rerise is so good. And I just have to say, this is a show, the more we talk about it, the more I like it. And that yeah, is the mark of a good do. show. This is definitely, this is one of the good ones. I'm so glad we got to talk about it. I'm glad this is the place where we've caught up to Gundam. Um, yes. If Can you imagine if Build Divers had been the last Gundam show? Oh, it just would have been such a bummer. Like, that episode yeah. would have been such a bummer to record if it was like, and now we're going to have to wait, like, a year or something to get the Mercury show or whatever, you know? Yeah, no. But this is a good resting place. And worth just a second reflecting, uh, Sean, I've now seen all the Gundam. All of it. Yes. And so have I. I had yes. obviously like this is a show this is my first time watching it. So it's we we both caught up completely. It it took yep. a while for me to start catching up, but you know, it took 3 years for me to like get get to where my backlog was, but we got to my backlog and now we're both all the way through all of the main Gundam stuff. Yes. We've done it. Before we take a look back and do our big anniversary episode, though, there are a couple of things that we've actually both seen before, but we have not reviewed in depth. Uh, and that is going to be next week's episode, where we are finally going to be tackling the anime version as it exists now of Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt, seasons one and two, or the movies December Sky and Bandit Flower. Uh, but we'll also be throwing in one more little extra. Do you want to tell us about it, Sean? Yes, we'll be also throwing in the little animated... Uh piece of Gundam called Twilight Axis mostly because it's like it's something I think is worth bringing in uh, not because it doesn't have really any connection to Thunderbolt other than it's in UC Gundam um, but it's like it's one of those where I, it's been in the back of my head that like oh, we should throw that onto an episode somewhere because it is worth talking about but it's so small it certainly would not warrant its whole own episode of this podcast because it'd be like a 15 to 20 minute discussion at most um, so we're, we're throwing that into Thunderbolt so that we're like getting the full you know, we're, we're getting all the way caught up. This is kind of our way of, like, hedging out the couple little places we've sort of, like, skipped out on, partially because we had already watched it, um, because this is stuff that you watched in your, like, a crazy binge after we did the original show, and you went yes. fucking crazy and watched a bunch of stuff. And it's like, oh my god, Jonathan, what are you doing? How are we going to do podcasts on it? Yes. And Thunderbolt, if you have never seen it before, I love it. It is unfinished. It is two yeah. seasons that have been made into two movies. You should just watch the movie versions, because yeah. they have everything. Um, December Sky is its I actually is its own standalone thing. It it, it ends and because it's the first arc. Bandit Flower is an adaptation of like an arc that was ongoing in the manga, and it it ends very much on a cliffhanger and is unfinished. And they have not come back. We don't know if they ever will. The manga has continued much further, and at some point we will review the manga as a separate thing. Hopefully, they make more anime. But just if you've never seen Thunderbolt, know that ahead of time. I still think it's worth watching, but yeah. it is one we've saved for now. Because we weren't sure it's it's the only Gundam we're going to talk about that is very unfinished. Yes, and and, and yeah, the, we'd like to do the manga, but the manga is also not quite done yet. Um, so yeah. when that finishes up, we'll try to do a manga episode for that as well. 
But that's going to be the Thunderbolt and Twilight Access together next episode. And that will be the last episode before our big third year anniversary where we will be totally caught up and we will have to face the nature of the beast that we have created uh, and how we <laughs> go about ranking stuff in songs and all that. It's going to be a, a big, big anniversary this year. Yes. And that'll be the end of this season of Weekly Suit Gundam. It will continue after that. We're going to have some discussions on what to do next, but there's lots of exciting stuff to come in the future. Yes, more on the horizon. But for now, I think it's time to get really excited for some jazz. Kimi wa ikinobiru koto ga dekiru ka. <laughs>